subscribers and stockholders in movie mindset i'm often confronted with the statement i don't want to get mixed up in watching movies or i'm tired of movies or let's just watch tv almost as often someone says i just can't pay attention to something for that long let me point out two things number one all of us are equally involved with movies whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not and number two we can all do something to watch more movies When you spend more hours watching a television show that is based on a movie than you would just watching the original movie, that's politics. But we're talking movies. Today, we are talking, and in fact, talking over each other in an intricate bit of (laughs) multi-track recording, overlapping dialogue, and sound design, because we are talking Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller from 1971 and Nashville from 1975. Two hilarious and heartbreaking masterpieces that create a microcosm of American society in two communities, the fictional town of Presbyterian Church, Washington, and the city of Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. In Altman's examination of these social bodies, he charts a course from how we came to be the country that we are to perhaps where we are all going. As the song that opens Nashville goes, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. And uh, that's really where I want to begin. And joining us, joining Hessa and I for this episode is uh, one, of my, one of my favorite guys to talk about movies with. It's Andrew Hudson from episode one. Andrew, welcome to Movie Mindset. I'm glad to be on Movie Mindset. Thank you for having me on. It's been a long time coming for us to talk these movies in particular. Yeah, I know. Because like, I've, I've talked to you many times in, in person about Robert Altman, on Twitter about Robert Altman. It comes time. It's time to give Robert Altman his due. And... I guess I want to talk like the way, the way I want to begin is like the entry point to this these two movies is uh, the, the hilarious song that Henry Gibson sings at the very beginning of Nashville, a a patriotic anthem uh, composed for the bicentennial of which the chorus goes, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. And I think the joke is that as far as nations go, uh, 200 years is really not that long to last. And I just sort of think about both these movies about like depicting America as a person at various states of its of our uh, sort of emotional and social development, starting with our I guess adolescence in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and then after going through the hardships of the 20th century, emerging into a post-Vietnam, post-Watergate era as the inheritors of the world with nothing but time and money in our hands. And I guess the question is, what kind of adult, what kind of adult life will we all lead here in America? And I think the answer to that question resolved in Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller is uh, one obsessed with um, sex, celebrity, entertainment, and murder. I mean, I think in terms of filmmaking, like Altman is an auteur in a way that like very few others are in that he kind of, invented his own language and style truly like an iconoclast in that he like the dialogue thing which is insane and which clearly like oft imitated never never reproduced um i don't know like he's in a league with like david lynch and 
maybe like John Ford or someone, someone from like way back then in that he really takes not a lot from anyone else of his like contemporaries or even people that came before him and just like had his own idea and like stuck with it. And I think that that's really the only way you can tell the story, the messy, like crazy, insane story of America is as this thing that just kind of like happens. Yeah. You know, it's all these around. Yeah. Yeah. These intersecting stories that just like it really like even in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the real story doesn't really kick in until like halfway through basically when the people offer to buy his his holdings i mean the same with like with nashville there really is no you know it's gonna be interesting seeing how we talk about nashville because there's no summarizing every detail of the non-existent plot of the three hours of nashville it'd be like it's like talking about gravity's rainbow (laughs) it's it's impossible yeah it's not like it's not like you could just like explain it like scene by scene because you know just you're going to be there all day and it's boring but you can like maybe a scene will pop in your head when you think about either of these movies usually and sometimes they're just random scenes but um as you said about altman he definitely is unique and when it comes to robert altman i mean he's my guy he's like my number one i didn't even really know that much of his movies until like I, i was talking about this yesterday um when i was doing uh an episode of pop that corn because I kind of went into Altman, but like, I didn't know about his movies till like my late twenties and he became like my favorite. And I think he's the best American director. And I, I think Marty is like second behind him, which is, you know, Will would probably disagree because that's his guy. <laughs> I, I honestly, my, I wouldn't even, I can't Scorsese, even argue. I can't even argue. Scorsese was my favorite for like most of my life too. Um, at least for Americans, but uh, Robert Altman, he made like a million movies. He never stopped making movies. And he had so many good ones that the he definitely gets a pass for his not good ones. And he also was one of those directors who made what he wanted to make. He made movies basically for himself, which was the best way to make a movie. And he also would yeah. tell people like, if a friend of mine likes all of my movies, like, I think that's weird. Like, he's like, you got to <laughs> dislike some of my shit, basically. <laughs> and he went through, I mean, he lived for quite a long time, the whole time he was working. And I was talking about how... um you know, actors loved working with him so much because he let them act. And you mentioned the, the audio thing, which sometimes I think might be a turnoff for people when they first experience his films. It's kind of like jarring. It's kind of like being blasted with all this, you know, stimulation because he would set up mics all around the set. and He'd tell people just talk like just act improv, like just say what you think your character would be saying or be talking about. And it, he was like famous for this. And they loved doing that because, like, I get it. He had like a a vision of what was how the scene played out. He wasn't doing like the Terrence Malick, like take a camera and just say some bullshit and like make stuff up. And it's like (laughs) there's plenty of good Terrence Malick, but it the way Altman did it is he still made it all flow so well and it felt so natural. And it's almost like he was like uh, Jacques Tati. It reminds me of this too. He would uh, like throw you into the scene. Like you felt like you're walking around the scene in this world. And that's what made me really fall in love with his movies is because I was like, I'm like these characters that are passing through like Shelly Duvall's character who just showed up in town and they're just kind of looking around saying, no, Hey, what's up to like random people or your Jeff Goldblum, who is literally the (laughs) device to to transfer to the next scene to cut to the next scene. Tricycle man. The big giant motorcycle tricycle. And he like doesn't even talk the whole movie. He's just this 
uh, it, the old trailer for the the movie, they would be like, they're naming everyone that's in the movie because this this giant ensemble cast, right? Which was also famous for doing all the time. And they would they credited it in the the trailer. They go, Jeff Goldblum is a psycho freak who's everywhere the action is. And I, I and it's so funny because it's just drilled in my brain because that's that's literally all he does is he just he just drives around and uh, he just he's everywhere the action is, baby. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do a scene well, transition? Uh, there goes his bike, and he's taking people to someplace <laughs> like it's. Well, uh, per, per your point, Andrew, I think in both McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville, we really are treated to like, uh, like, like the the distilled essence of Robert Altman in terms of like the overlapping dialogue, the huge ensemble cast, but also like more than anything, like you said, Andrew, just this idea of creating these universes and filling it with weird people and having them entertain you, just following them, just setting them in motion and seeing what happens. And you sort of drop in and out of their lives and it doesn't really conform to like, yeah, traditional uh, plot structure or like a narrative design. It's just, you spend some time in this world and become like, sort of hypnotized by the lives of these weird characters and what's and just like the the banal little details of their life and then like the cumulative effect in both McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville is just so heartbreaking and devastating when it gets to the end of these both of these movies like the the effect of both these movies is profound but i would also like to state that they are are both extremely funny movies oh yeah and that that's what i'm going to begin talking about McCabe and Mrs. Miller cuz you know it's a movie. It's a movie about a man who comes to town. It's a movie about a guy with the modest dream to start a decently priced whorehouse and to, you know to, to to sell liquor and games of chance to uh, a, 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 a wide variety of American slack jaws and rubes. Like any dealer, he was watching for the car. It is so high and wild. He'll never need to deal another. He was just some Joseph looking for a manger. And, you know, that's really where the, where the movie begins. We're introduced to the, the, the rain-soaked Pacific Northwest of the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, welcome to the town of Presbyterian Church, Washington, a burgeoning mine community full of good cheer and good people. And now, listener, uh, if you are not a fan of the music of Leonard Cohen, then, buddy, turn back now. Because <laughs> yeah. even the action scenes are when something crazy is happening. Yeah. Here comes, here comes the first, Larry Cohen. The first time I saw this movie, I distinctly remember um, rewinding in the first scene and shazamming it because I I was like thirteen or something and didn't know who Leonard Cohen was. And I was like, "Whoa, this is like the most this is the deepest song I've ever heard in yeah, my life." No, exactly. <laughs> Just some Joseph looking for a manger, and what? it still goes Holy so shit. hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I love how yeah, all of it, I love how all of his songs. Is, I mean, this is just Leonard Cohen, where he's just like, hey, you know, she's not your lady, but you do just want to see her. And she <laughs> gives you all kinds of stuff, and you know that she <laughs> won't love you. It's just like, just it's all about just all of his songs are just about like this lady's so fucking hot, and I love having sex yeah. with her, but I know she won't want to be with me. This lady's a fucking smoke show, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's like a highway in a lot of ways if you think about it. I always think this lady's so hot she's like Jesus's mother but I'm just the guy who's traveling with her but I'm not the father of of our Lord and Savior I just I just want to have sex with Julie Christie and you know like uh, that's kind of what McCabe and Miss Miller is about it stars Warren Beatty as uh, McCabe and that's the funny thing about McCabe is that's not even his name 
we don't even really know what Warren Beatty's character's name is. He just arrives in Presbyterian Church, and in the uh, you know, uh, in in the ultimate esque bit of uh, overlapping conversations and sort of this like game of telephone among these among the local yokels, they're just like, "Hey, who's that guy?" And then someone's like, "I thought, oh, it's McCabe, the the gunfighter." And he just has out of nowhere, he just has this big rep. And he's like, oh, like, you know, well, I'm, he I'm, shot Bill just, Roundtree. Yeah, he shot There's Bill like, Roundtree. That's Pudgy McCabe. I think he <laughs> says in the movie, he's like, I think in the movie he does say, it's, my name's John. Like, it's John yeah. McCabe. Because he says, like, he's trying to deny, he like denies that he's Pudgy. And like, you wouldn't think that he's a gunslinger or anything. We'll talk about that later because there's a scene later on that's really funny. That's my favorite scene in the movie when um, it's the saddest scene, I think to it's like him at his lowest, I think in the entire movie, <laughs> because um, well, he like, he rolls into town and the he's first scene smarter than everyone else. Yeah. So he's automatically yeah, he's the, the smartest. Man in yeah. Town. <laughs> I, 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 have a, I have on my notes here. It's a, uh, it's, it's McCabe, the, the, the stranger who comes to town and he's the guy with the cool fur coat the good cigars, oh, the best citified, <laughs> citified clothes, which pretty much puts him in the running for the smartest, swaggiest man anyone in this absolutely primitive shithole has ever encountered. He's he's. It's not even so much that he's smarter than everyone. He is. He is smarter than everyone there. But he just has so much. He's just so swagged, and he's dripping with charisma. He gets his red velvet tablecloth to play cards yeah, yeah. he's he's so these guys, like, have been, these guys have been playing poker on like mud yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> until mccabe comes to town Does he shows them, like he, betting he, for pebbles and rocks he orders a bottle he orders yeah. a bottle from sheehan the, the like the barkeep the guy who owns the pub or like the tavern restaurant he's basically like um sheehan tell you what you put one coat of white paint on this fence and give me a bottle that we'll split. And then, uh, he's like, oh, okay, sounds good, Mr. McCabe. And like, I, I really want to talk about like this opening scene where McCabe comes to town and, and starts up a card game at uh, Sheehan's. Sheehan played by the great René Aubergenois, uh, sort of like a, 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 a stock character in Altman's stable of weird guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was in M.A.S.H., He's the he's actually plays Julie Christie's husband Star in Trek. images, and, the, and then of course he he, I will, he will always be Odo from Deep Space Nine for me, but yeah like and, and just like just personally for me McCabe and Miss, Mrs Miller I also saw it when I was about thirteen years old, and this movie really holds like it's one of those movies that like its its import in my life is magnified so greatly because it's a movie that I associate with my dad so much because it was a movie that he put me on to. And, 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 and at that age when I was like, he decided that I was old enough to start seeing like serious R-rated movies and he showed me, you know, the G- Goodfellas and The Godfather and then McCabe and Mrs. Miller was really like the, the outlier because it's so unconventional and I didn't quite know what to make of it when I first saw it but by the end of it, God, it just, it sunk, its, it, it just, it sunk itself so deep into me and it stayed with me my entire life. So I'm, I'm thrilled to share it with uh, everyone on Movie Mindset now. But like, let's talk about the opening scene where he, he shows up at uh, Sheehan's, which is like the, it's the, the bar, restaurant, hotel, and livery. It's, it's everything for this town. And what I think is so amazing about it is that like, the first scene is so muddy. And I mean that in, like, like in, in, in this sort of brown color palette, the darkness of it, but also the muddiness and how convoluted the action is. It's just like it doesn't cohere to anything. It's, it's, it's protean. It's this like uh, mm-hmm. and the visual space, too. yeah. They yeah, they exactly. put like um, a filter on the lens and they like flash the film negative so that it's like you lose a bunch of detail. It's like 
it's it feels like it's filmed on a daguerreotype like somehow <laughs> well altman said himself that he called this movie an anti-western because he didn't want it to feel like a western and he does a pretty good job because he's like oh i'm gonna make the setting not the desert or utah or wherever oklahoma it's gonna be monument valley right yeah. up in washington along the coast where it's just always raining or snowing just like the mm-hmm. wettest place you could possibly be and it's so sick for it like it looks so yeah. different from every other western besides like i don't know the great the great silence or something but another outlier yeah and i really also think like uh the, the tv show deadwood is very very indebted to mccabe and miss miller because it you know it, it also portrays this kind of like primitive proto-America, like almost like America before America existed, literally in Deadwood. But it also very much is about like the sort of like uh, the social body and like how like the, the, the individual constituents of this community, like how it's just sort of how community and how a nation itself is formed. And then in this kind of like new Hollywood milieu of like Altman as this very like subversive filmmaker, like you said, Andrew, the, the character of McCabe as sort of the anti-John Wayne of the Western hero who only has a rep as a gunfighter, but is actually like, as, as, as one of the characters said, says later in the movie, that man's never killed anyone in his life. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just this half smart pimp who comes to town with like, you know, the modest dream of selling women. Literally a pimp, literally <laughs> yeah. and figuratively a pimp. <laughs> like. I realized this last night. He reminds me of, um, why it should be the other, it's the other way around, I guess. But, George Clooney in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, who's just a liar, like a fake lawyer, and he tries to talk, he talks, he talks like this, he talks all smart, he he uses big fancy words, and like McCabe (laughs) talks the same way, where he's just like, he's very determined, and he he presents himself as being smart, and he might have a few, you know, expensive words, yeah, and people are like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about, because they're a bunch of like Irish dolts in the hills who don't know how to do anything. <laughs> they are everyone in the town of Presbyterian Church is an NPC. And yeah. Hessa, I, I saw you earlier this morning. I loved your idea for a McCabe and Mrs. Miller like paradox video game called yeah. Warhouse Tycoon. <laughs> yeah. It's like um oh um Madame Bovary's encroaching on your territory. <laughs> do you want to like, spread uh, the clap at her establishment? <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> or like you know you can like uh you, you pull out like uh you pull out like his um his his one-liners to advance the dialogue tree like you, you got what, what's the matter sheen you got a turd in your pocket or something he goes listen <laughs> if a if a frog had wings he wouldn't bounce his ass so much and I, I just i just love all of the mccabe isms where he just comes in and starts spitting all this game and like glad handing and wheeling and dealing <laughs> and all these all these absolute oafs are just so seduced by him immediately. They're all just like, oh, we want to play cards with McCabe. He's the coolest guy we've ever met. Hey, buy some whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back then, that's like, I mean, that's still like what what people just want to do is just hang out and drink. Back then, that was definitely the only thing to do. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Like when, when he first walks into Sheehan's place, this is just like a, a just a vision of what everyone in like the late 19th, early 20th century was doing on a Friday night, which is like, Sitting in a room with a with a dirt floor, one light, uh, star- staring <laughs> at each other. Like maybe, maybe some guy would be playing a fiddle in the background, and like, yeah. but that's what's so funny about all the overlapping dialogue is like these little snippets of conversation that you see among these guys, like the two guys who are like talking about should I get a haircut or not. Yeah, like what you? I then you see Elena. What do you have? Then, <laughs> you, like, you, then there's a scene where he shaves and he's just got a mustache. He's kind of rubbing his smooth face. He's like, "What do you think?" Yeah. To everyone. What do you think? And they're like, they're like, he's like, do you notice anything different? And they're like, what? <laughs> no. 
It's like, like that's what, and, like uh, that was the only thing to talk about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Get a mail order bride, you know, maybe. Yeah, oh my, my god. Wife. The I mean, mail well, order yeah, we'll bride. Talk about it, like, part. It, it, the the introduction of women into this like totally homosocial world is also really interesting and funny because like then for the first chunk of the movie it is only men. It is only men staring at each other by, you know, uh, by lamplight, playing cards and get, drinking whiskey until they're um, insensate. But it's just like a, like a totally male world. And in that, McCabe sees an opportunity. He sees that this town is full of gold and like barely literate chumps. So he's like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into like the next nearest town and just buy a couple of women and bring them here. And it, it really speaks to this idea of like this, like I said, this proto-America in which everything is totally mercenary. Everything is bought and sold, chief mm-hmm. among them women. Chippies. <laughs> Chippies. And uh, I, I love when, um, like when they're at uh, Sheehan's place, for the, like they're playing cards, and Sheehan says, you know, you can, uh, you can bunk down here for two bits a night. And then they go upstairs to like the bunkhouse, and it is like the most squalid thing you've ever... It was just like, <laughs> it's just bunk beds. And it was just like 30 guys like, sleeping this. on the floor. Yeah. McCabe <laughs> says... I wouldn't. He goes. I wouldn't stay here for free if you had a goddamn San Francisco whore in every bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, I really got to talk about Warren Beatty's performance in this movie is just so fucking perfect. He's so funny. He's, He's just so all good. of his like little mutterings to himself and like his little asides to other people are just so funny. Dripping with charisma, like literally, and um. So he is setting up his new whorehouse and he gets, um, you know, he's also slightly more business minded than everyone else in town. He because as they're building the whorehouse, he's like, where are the tents? We need a place because he wants to build individual tents for all of his whores so that they can turn (laughs) tricks while he's building the whorehouse. It's a real... A real, a real class joint where he's getting, yeah. He has like, you know, minors fuck these I women mean, in tents. Like, yeah, these yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I mean, a twelve-year-old. He's gonna start the business. Oh yeah, one of, one of them is clearly like a child or has the intelligence of a child. <laughs> yeah, because when she brings it, when he brings her back, she says, "Where's the potty?" It's it's like there is, like the arrival of every woman in this town, other than Constance Miller, played by Julie Christie, is just about the saddest thing imaginable. Oh yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like like it, it, like it, like the life of a goat is worth more than a woman in this world and it's just like yeah. they show up and they're like oh like this is your life now and all all, all the half wits and oafs are just like goggle eyed looking at like the three saddest women i've ever seen on the planet they're like gosh i can't wait to meet them well there's a there's a scene where um sheen goes to talk to him and he's like hey we should have a partnership because if this place gets built up you know people are going to try to come in and uh start other you know shops and restaurants and everything else and then while they're talking, you hear screaming, and it's Alma, the youngest of the three. And she's running out of the, her tent with the guy after her, and she's stabbing this guy with a big knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mikhail has to go and like, break it up. And right when this action starts breaking out, here comes a fucking nice, somber Leonard Cohen song that's like, and yeah. there she was a lady. And it's, so, it's a, such a funny <laughs> image. And, like, and then a dog yeah. A dog runs into and is barking at both of them as he's like wrestling the knife away. It's like total chaos. Like. So then Constance arrives like shortly after, I think. Well, I mean, yeah. like uh, as, as in the knifing incident, like he, he declines a partnership with Sheehan, like the second smartest guy in town. Or the guy that he dethroned as the smartest man yeah. in Presbyterian Washington. He declaims a partnership with him. Um, but then like with the knife incident, you realize that like actually... 
Uh, selling pussy is actually a harder racket than uh, the movies and music would have you believe. And uh, like earlier in the scene where he travels to like the nearest town to buy a, a string of a string of horrors to bring back to bring back to town. Um, this is the first time we see Julie Christie for like half a second. She notices him. It's not speaking, but you see her in the background and she notices him. This kind of gold tooth fur coat guy buying a buying a string of chippies, and he says to the guy he's buying these women from, he says, "You goddamn butternut muff diver, I want three for two hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I just love all it's the all the period the dialogue in this is so funny. <laughs> and when she when she arrives, she arrives on that um like that crazy uh, oh the steam like the, the, the steam, steam engine tractor like, that like brings yeah like it's cargo like the only way to get to the mud this hill yeah going one and, mile per hour <laughs> and they they see her they're like i bet that's uh i bet that's bart's mail order bride and he's seeing julie christie <laughs> and he's like god he's like he's like i bet that is her he's and like it's like wistful thinking the most disgusting man you've ever seen running towards <laughs> the train like ida ida and she's um, like, but- Ida, I think this one's for you. And then you see Ida is Shelley Duvall, mm-hmm. who looks terrified. Yeah. She's yeah. Got, like, oh all wrapped up. She looks so innocent. <laughs> and-, and again, like, it, it, it's funny, but like, it's just, uh, it, it, it's such a nasty mercenary world, particularly for women, because like, this is the options available to you. It's like, uh, you can be sold to one man. Or like dozens of them who lease you on a night by night basis, but like that is the only social <laughs> status of women in this world. And I think one of my favorite lines in the like movie Dubai. is like, "Yeah, <laughs> like enterprising men, and the women can't do anything." Yeah, um, no, but there's a there's a great line later in the movie that's actually very sweet, where Warren Beatty's talking to himself and sort of psyching himself up about how much he loves Julie Christie, and he says, "Whore is the only kind of woman I would know anyway." <laughs> It's like, you know, yeah. just, that's, those are the only women you know are whores. So it's like, of course, I'm in love with one because they're the only women around. It's like, they ain't, he's basically saying, there ain't nothing wrong with them. You know, I love yeah. this one. But she shows yeah. up and she immediately starts roasting his ass, saying yeah, that, it's... like, his, his setup is dog shit and that she can build him a nice yeah. whorehouse with real good the first, whores. I th- the first, like, thing she says to him is um, she wants to have a meeting with them, a business meeting. And they go up to Sheenan's restaurant or Sheen's restaurant, Ed Sheeran's restaurant. And um, <laughs> she's like, you know, if you wanted to make pretend that you're like some big, some big shot, you shouldn't wear that like cheap ass cologne. <laughs> and he is just <laughs> dumbstruck <laughs> because he's and- like fully in love with her at this point already. <laughs> and then she eats like eight eggs. Yeah, she eats four <laughs> eggs and stew, four fried eggs on top of stew, and she eats it literally in real time in like 30 seconds. <laughs> and he's just sitting there staring at her, he's sitting there drinking yeah. his double whiskey with Slack the jawed. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, like, oh, he, first ne- he never to- eats. He never eats. He just has whiskey. He only, with he only the cracks egg eggs in and whiskey. <laughs> yeah. It sounds that, like the that worst, is the real breakfast the of champions. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the scene. It's like their first date, where where he buys her eggs and then just sits there and, and just watching. Like he has no idea who this woman is or what she wants from him, but he's just so captivated. Well, by well her. when, when they like, order, he also says, "Buy all these boys in here a drink on me to kind of look like the man." Mm-hmm. <laughs> then she basically makes him the offer. She's like, "Look, well, I know that if you had a house up here, you stand to make yourself a lot of money. Now this is all you've got to do." Put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house so you won't lose nothing. 
And we'll make it 50 50. Uh, excuse me, you know I already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, you can't call them crib cows, whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. Well, I, I don't think you're going to find my clientele up here uh, too interested in that sort of thing. They will be once they get a taste of it. I'm telling you, with someone up here to handle all them punters properly, you can make yourself at least double the money you make on your own. Well, well, what makes you think I ain't thought of that already? Uh, them tents, you know, it's just uh, temporary. What do you do when one girl fancies another? How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies? Because they don't. What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? You going to do that? What do you... Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. What about when, when business is slow? You just going to let the girls sit around on their bums? Because I'll tell you something, Mr. McKay. When a good all gets time to sit around and think, four out of five times you turn to religion, because that's what they was born with. And when that happens, you'll find yourself filling the bloody church down there instead of your own pockets. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to sit around and talk to a man who's too dumb to see a good proposition when it's put to him. Do we make a deal or don't we? You don't know jack shit about running a whorehouse. You're doing a bad job. You need... Why don't you, like, split the profits with me and give me a seed investment? I'll build us a whorehouse. It's like, you want and, to do anything. Um, yeah, you Just don't have to do it. anything. Just provide I'll run the it. capital to build the whorehouse, and I'll do mm-hmm. everything. And she like, like I'll bring she in real girls to, like, and keep yeah, yeah, there's a great good and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a great uh, the, her sort of monologue to him where she hips him to like just how little he knows about being a pimp. Mm-hmm. You're gonna she's check like, under the skins, make sure they don't cut the clap. Yeah, she gonna, are you gonna peel back these guys to see if they're burning? Because otherwise, this town will be clapped up within a week. She goes, "What do you do when a girl fancies another girl? What do you do if she says she's on her monthlies? But like, how do you know if she's lying or not? You know, it's just like this whole list, this whole list of concerns that he was just like, "What? I bought, bought some girls, put them in a tent, and uh, get money. Yeah. <laughs> like, They'll figure it out. Like, It'll work out somehow. Free money." <laughs> <laughs> You just got to dig him a hole to shitting, and then yeah, we're good. <laughs> uh, and like you know, and it's clear like Julie Christie, uh, her arrival in town, this th- puts her like she is a hundred IQ points past everyone else in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> yeah. at this point in American history. She's the smartest person. <laughs> it's like when Keith Carradine shows up later. He yeah, says, I already got the fanciest whorehouse in the in the whole territory, and it's like, well, she's the <laughs> smartest like... person in the whole territory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, I really love that one of the details about like like uh, a qualifier for like, will I go to business? Will I go into business with McCabe or not? Is that he he can't just build a whorehouse; he has to build her a bathhouse too, so that the guys that come in to fuck her aren't like just stinking from the mines. You have to like wipe your ass before you go in, as she describes it, <laughs> a proper sporting house. With linens, mm-hmm. <laughs> they keep mentioning the, the linens. It's so by the cool. Time the girls she she has to come work in the brothel show up. Everything's pretty much built up, and it's looking pretty fucking good. Like this town is like juiced up at this point. I think the saloon is finished at this point as well. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And what I think is so cool about that is that, like, as we mentioned in like the the first scene of the movie in Sheen's and the card game, and how how like literally and metaphorically muddy everything is in terms of plot. Like the like the the image itself, the acting, but then like I I swear like at, at at each stage in this movie, as you see like the town of Presbyterian Church, Washington, at various stages of God, development, it really is like paradox. The movie and attains, that's the, yeah, <laughs> the NBCs are doing when he arrives. You're the player. McCabe is the player character, maybe. Yeah. Like he finally he arrives to the town. That's what the NBCs are doing. It's just sitting in this dark, shitty Irish shithole. 
<laughs> you know, like with nothing to do. And then like, all right, I'm going to build this place up. This is like, I'm going to upgrade my town center every now and then when I have enough money, you know, it's just keep upgrading. Yeah. Shit. You need to get upgrade mats for your whores. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. putting off the church building um, until they have enough faith to upgrade it. <laughs> oh, no. One of your whores, Alma, has has <laughs> stabbed has one of the Johns. What do you do? Yeah. And he the, doesn't know um, because he needs Julie Christie to advance to a proper um, sporting house. But before the place even gets built, my favorite, um, my favorite gag in the whole movie occurs where um, once he makes the deal with um, Mrs. Miller, he is drunk for pretty much most of the rest of the movie. <laughs> and his first night of being like, you know, he's drunk, like walking around the town and he runs into the guys. He's like, he's paying them 15 cents a day to come from straight from the mines and work on building the bathhouse. <laughs> and um, he like passes them, says hi walks up to Julie Christie's house and knocks on the door and says, Mrs. Miller, can I have a word with you? Can you open the door? And she's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, well, if you think I came all this way to talk to you. And if you think I'm just going to have a conversation through the door and he tries to force it open and can't. And then he says, <laughs> well, that's all right then. And then continues to talk to her through the door. <laughs> Well, this is this is uh, uh, after the fact of like talking to his uh, talking to the NPCs, and another really funny gag is the way that all the town oafs start talking like McCabe. Like immediately after he talks to me, he's like, "He's like, I'll tell you, if you boys, he goes, I, I, I'm trying to put something together so you have something to do at night other than play with Mary Five Fingers. And like, if you think I'm gonna let some goddamn chippy tell me how to run a gooseberry ranch, and you got another thing coming, and then like, as soon as he walks away, like the guy who's like." Uh, you know, uh, the the leader of the, like the oaf, yeah, the yeah. foreman of the the oaf foreman the just starts talking to the guys, and he's like, "All right, you heard him, gang. If if you want to do something other than play with Mary and her five fingers, and they're like, shut up, man.' <laughs> but immediately he tells all the oafs, he's like, "If you think I'm gonna let this chippy run my business, and then he walks up and he's like, "Hey, uh, M- Mrs. Miller, can I can I come in, please? Can I talk to you about a few business concerns?" And she's like, "No, I'm sm- I'm smoking dope. I'm getting high." Yeah, she's smoking. This is a scene where you first see her, I think, take out the opium pipe. And mm-hmm. start blazing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, there's a lot of Chinese in the town too. I think. I think they might have come with. They might have come with Constance's, or maybe they did. No, they came with the uh, the the fancy horse when they showed. I think up. The, Ch- the Chinese people were, were already there. in town because yeah. it, like, At one point, Sheenan says, uh, "Oh yeah, you're right. You're right." But you see them more, like a little bit. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like, I sell whiskey. I don't tolerate opium smokers around here. <laughs> yeah, he asks um, Sheenan when he first gets there if there are any Chinese people living in town in uh, not as gentle way as I just <laughs> said. But um, then basically they build the whorehouse, then the whores arrive. The whores from Seattle. The, yeah, the, the, the whores fancy from Seattle. Girls, the fa- and I also like <laughs> that like when, when the Seattle girls arrive, like the original stock of like the saddest, the saddest horrors I've ever seen. They just seen become in my the life. caretakers. They just become the caretaker. Like one becomes the cook, and then one of my fa- my favorite line in the movie is uh, the 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 woman who becomes the cook says, "I'm uh, says to one of like the the, the local the local luminaries. Uh, I forget the name of the actor. He's in Mash though, and she goes." I'm not a whore no more. I'm a cook. And he goes, oh, you're giving up on all your training. Think of all the experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, like, it's clear like from, from the get-go, from the jump, 
uh, Constance Miller, Julie Christie, is like the dominant one in their partnership. And she oh, is yeah. just running McCabe. And like he, she has her wrapped around his finger. But also, she is in her own way. And the thing is, like, in this, in this like world of like only men have any kind of social status and not much to begin with, and when, in which women are essentially commodities, like, to survive in that world, like, Julie Christie is the ultimate realist. She is like, she has no time for like McCabe. McCabe is a dreamer in the like typical American sense, you know, like he, he has more, more wit and like ambition than actual intelligence or no. He's like, I mean, he's a typical classic success story. I mean, look at Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a smart guy, but he's like, wow. Look at Hal Philip Walker. Cause he's just, (laughs) he's just confident and doesn't know how to feel shame. But then, you know, McCabe thinks he knows how to do everything, but he actually needs her and he sees how much more efficient she is. He's like, Oh, well, Plus, she's like the most beautiful woman, you know, he's probably ever seen. It's Julie Christie. Mm-hmm. And I love I love when um, he like first sees the completed whore house and a guy comes in and is like, all right, so all the whores are one dollar. And Julie Christie, like Mrs. Miller, you're five dollars. That's <laughs> she's so like, much. Like, this I got to try. He's like, he's like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Five dollars. She's like, that's right. And then he's like. You know what? Let's do it. He starts reaching to his pocket. <laughs> oh his boy, oh goes, boy, oh his, boy. His buddy goes, you must be rich. <laughs> and, and, then uh, she's had it, and this whole time, McCabe's talking about some business discussion with one of his you know, lackeys, the guy with the long <laughs> blonde hair and the glasses, you know, kind of looks like a blonde John Lennon. And he's uh, talking about this. And the whole time, he's like looking over his shoulder, looking at Julie Christie. And he sees her going upstairs with this guy. And it just, you, it, it bugs him. It's like, you started the whole whore business. And yeah. now she's going up. And he's like... You can tell he's like jealous. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So that <laughs> he night, wants to she, be fucking that guy. When she comes to talk to her, she's like smoking. <laughs> he eventually comes back that night, and this time she's in a much better mood. She's like giggly and smiley. Yeah, he shows up and he's gonna, you know, he starts taking out his big, big old billfolds and you know counting them and puts them in the little box and he climbs mm-hmm. into bed with her. I mean, there's like a lot of this is like a pretty important scene because it's like you know the first time I think they like sleep together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's also very funny in that scene when he's like, "Wow, you seem really happy. Like you almost like you smoked dope or something." <laughs> anyway, like, smoked a giant opium pipe like five yeah. minutes before. And yeah, like uh, like you know, Mrs. Miller is an addict, and she is like she's a bit loopy in this scene. But like, God, this scene is just so beautiful and tender to me because like you know he's. He's given her his, his whole line of Blarney as he's like getting into his long johns. And she's sort of like in this scene, she sort of like has to stifle a smile by like bunching up the covers over her face to sort of hide how, I don't know, charmed she's or kind of, she's sort of giggling at like just like uh, uh, what a dunce he is, but I also like, kind of how much she likes him. I like mm-hmm. it. I like the scene too because you know she's high in opium, but that's not why she's giggly or like happy. It's like, she's actually feel like allowed to feel like happiness instead of having to be like uptight and everything and deny McCabe and right now. And he's paying her too. So now mm-hmm. she's like, you can tell at this point, like she actually does like him a bit. Like she has a, she has a thing for McCabe too, even though she's like high as fuck. It's, oh yeah. It's like simultaneously very funny, but also very sweet. As you said, will mm-hmm. and like, you know, he tries to get in bed with her and she sort of like, without saying anything, she sort of stops him and sort of like with her eyes gestures to her little money box. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and like, like I said, at, at this point, like the, 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 the whorehouse development is near to being complete. 
and as I said earlier, like at the various stages of the town's like actual physical development into like uh, something other than just like <laughs> huts for, for, for NPCs, yeah. um, the, the film itself achieves a level of clarity and like momentum that didn't exist before. And we see um, like it, it's nighttime and um, some, some guy mistakes Shelley Duvall's character for a whore and her husband like gets in a fight with him and then cracks his head open and dies. Like yeah. right, right in front of her, it just dies on the street. And, and she's like visibly relieved when he dies. It's very <laughs> This old it's ugly like, motherfucker named Bart. Yeah. <laughs> well, he but doesn't like, die just yet. He's he's in and out of consciousness for the next like three months or whatever. But, but you know, Shelley Duvall, I mean, just God, another like another absolutely traumatizing and heartbreaking arrival and introduction to this community. Cause like, oh, like she had like her only protection in life was this guy who bought her, and then now that's gone. So, and then eventually she just joins the whorehouse, as you know, mm-hmm. as one does. But like, she seems a in, lot in this, happier at the whorehouse, though. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> well, like Julie Christie is like talking into it. She's like, oh, she's like, yeah, you lay there, you count the roses on the wall. She's like, you might even <laughs> yeah. learn to like it. <laughs> and she's like, you did it before. You did it with Bart. She's like, well, that was my duty. I had to do it. And she's like, no, that wasn't your duty. You're doing it for bread and board. She's like, that's the same thing here. <laughs> like, Julie Christie just gives it to you straight. She's mm-hmm. the ultimate realist. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Like, and at this point, the movie is almost when I like have to like I I'm I'm tempted to stop watching the movie because I know what's coming, but this mm-hmm. is the, like like at this point of the of the community's development and in the fulfillment of McCabe's dream that the company men show up. Oh These yeah, two representatives of a mining company, uh, one of whom uh, Roebuck is played by uh, Michael Murphy, who we will see uh, mm-hmm. just in a little bit in Nashville, and then, of course baby. Andrew is Tanner eighty eight mm-hmm. as Tanner, uh, and also he is like the one guy that has like better drip than McCabe. Like he has a yeah, much he's got, nicer fur coat. Yes, he's got a this seal skin fur coat. Yeah, he's got in this velour hat. <laughs> He kind of like flexes on McCabe and a they, little. They, like, they meet with McCabe and McCabe is drunk as fuck. When they <laughs> yeah. each, what I love about this is McCabe immediately tries to big dick these like actual like with this like, McCabeisms, like, actual bi- bi- businessmen, like real yeah. money, real capital. <laughs> he tries to big dick them in the same way that he does to all the all the slack jaws and just starts coming in drunk. And he's just like, well, yeah, now, see, I'm, I'm letting you know one goddamn thing. If a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass when he jumped. And then they're just looking and at the guys him like, like Who what the, the fuck, fuck are you talking like, about? <laughs> he they're like, him, big they're like stone sober. Yeah, he tries to big <laughs> these like, guys, and yeah, yeah. he blows it entirely. He just <laughs> he sinks himself immediately because <laughs> he tries to bid them up, and he tries to just like well, they run, offer run like, this. Yeah, they do offer him like what five thousand, which what wasn't a shit. nothing, and he yeah. was right to turn it down. Yeah, yeah. Even though five thousand was a lot of money at that time, it wasn't I mean, shit for a town. Everyone um, tells him how stupid he was to turn it down, and it's just because, like, um, as Julie Christie will tell him later, oh, it was um, Harris and Shaughnessy. That's who tried to buy you out? Oh, you should have taken it, because they're going to kill you now. She's like, <laughs> yeah. they'll, she's like they'll sooner put a bullet in your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, he, he, he's trying to bid them up and thinks that, like, oh, like, I'm just I'm going to let him simmer, you know? Like, you got, you guys, like, you know, in any game of chance, you got to know when the other side is bluffing. 
And then, and no, Julie Christie's the one who's like, you fucking idiot. Like, these people would just as soon kill you as fucking buy something from you. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens. It's like, the, he thinks he's going to meet them the next day for breakfast to like, you know, oh, yeah. we'll get to the real number eventually. And the older guy, like, not Michael Murphy, the older guy is just like, forget this. I'm turning it over to Jake. They just turn it yeah. over to the contractor who deals with people who don't want to sell. And like, rather also, than even negotiate with this guy, they're just like, we're leaving. Fuck this. One, um, one last detail. Um, before that, they do come back and offer him 750 more. And he says no. And the guy's like, listen, man. The older guy's like, listen, man. Just take the money. All right? Come on. Like, you don't want this to end up the wrong way. And meanwhile, in the background, um, one of the whores, Birdie, is um having her birthday and in one of my favorite like little touches of the whole movie it's like um for the past like five minutes it's been intercutting like them making a cake for birdie and then they bring it out and birdie is still talking is like still working on her birthday (laughs) just like talking to a guy and it's like all right birdie time for your like five minute break (laughs) from being a whore on your birthday (laughs) come blow out the candles have a piece of cake and then go back to work (laughs) and and then like McCabe is like yeah we'll pick this back up in the morning he calls over birdie and the other girl and he's like hey why don't you uh why don't you take care of these gentlemen here and they're like oh so nice dude look at your hat and they're like you know you know they're just like juicing up these guys gassing them up Mm -hmm. the guys are kind of like yeah totally uninterested yeah At some point, um, I can't remember if it's before or after the company men show up, uh, a, a dark rider rides up to the town. Yeah, right? yes. You, a cowboy. And I love this part because it really shows how they're just normal people. Um, and you kind of get a sense that maybe McCabe was back in the day a gunslinger because they're like, McCabe, and he goes to handle it. And he walks across the bridge to go, you know, talk to this cowboy. And he walks up with a, like a he's got this strut and he's got his his holster and his gun showing like ready to draw. And you're like, oh shit! Like that's the first mm-hmm. time you really see McCabe like showing kind of like a sign that he can be violent. And he's like, he's like, what do you want? And the guy you see is Keith Carradine. The big smile is like, oh, I don't want no trouble. And then he's, he's like, like, gosh, Mister, I heard like, about the fanciest whorehouse. He's, <laughs> he's like, well, what do you want? He's like, well, gee, Mister, I heard you got the fanciest whorehouse in the whole territory. It's like the most lovable dude of all time. And he's like, yeah. he, 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 he's, and he's like a cowboy too. And then McCabe was like, come on with me. And then <laughs> Keith come Caradine, on in, brother. Keith Caradine's walking around the, like the whorehouse that like later on, it cuts uh, to a scene where he's walking around. He's in his long johns with this big ass hat on still. And he's so like, <laughs> he's in such a good mood because he's been fucking it all night. Basically he's spending all his money. He's like, who wants to be next? And they're like, well, so, and so he's like, She's like, which one of us do you want? He's like, well, shoot, it don't matter. I'm going to have you all. <laughs> he's like, well, it's just a lady vacuum. And he's like, oh, what's that? She's like, it's vacuuming contraption or something like that. He's like, but again, wow. like, 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 like the, uh, like the steam tractor that pulls people up the hill or the introduction of the vacuum cleaner to like the cleanest whorehouse in America in the 19th century. Like, I just like all these little artifacts of like, uh, like social and technological development as, as like, as it happens and like, as America becomes America, but like, because it's America, like the, the true, the true power at play is of course the forces of capital and that's the mining company. And one more detail that I really like is that Julie Christie is the one who tells him that like, you fucking idiot. You just blew it. Like you could have, you could have had like six thousand dollars and your life, and now you're gonna have to worry about these guys killing you. And like the thing is, she's actually genuinely concerned because she doesn't want to see this guy get killed because she mm-hmm. likes him. 
she she feels like she feels concerned for him. But then after the two mining company guys have like left him, you know, like left him basically being like, "We've just signed your death warrant." Yeah. The other like one one of one of the local elders, one of the one of the the town luminaries who like when they're not busy debating over whether Chinese women's pussies go sideways, is he's just like he's like, "Oh, remember those mining company guys?" And he goes, "Yeah, you handled them beautifully. They knew they weren't dealing with no tin horn." <laughs> <laughs> it's just like they can't conceive of anyone smarter than McCabe. Mc- so and at this smarter point, McCabe was like, at this point, McCabe is like secretly like, ah, shit. Like I gotta talk to them. Like <laughs> yeah, maybe, he, uh, from the uh, mine from the company men to the end of the movie, McCabe fails like every single speech check but one, basically. <laughs> and um, he, this I think is like my the most tragic scene in the movie. The scene that really like dismantles the whole. McCabe's whole um, image kind of is the scene where this guy rolls into town with this giant gun, this like elephant yeah, gun, like an elephant a gun. massive yeah. man. But yeah. this is and but this is a character of Butler and like Butler, the mining, Jake, Jake, the mining company guns who come to town and like there's no, yeah. there's no there's no real evil in the community of Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church Washington and yeah and McCabe goes in to like sort of he thinks he can negotiate with this guy. Mm-hmm. And he he fails every single like speech check. He fails like the strength <laughs> check. He fails the intimidation check. He fails every. He tries everything. Charisma, and fails. Just yeah. snake eyes. Barter. Um. Yeah. Well, he's asking. <laughs> he, like he's talking to Butler, and um, he's like, "You work. You work with them." He's like, "I work for them sometimes." And then yeah. uh, he's like, "They're talking." He's like, "How much did you want?" And he's like, "Well, I asked him for ten thousand And uh, he's like. But I could have calmed down. He's like, how much? He's like, oh, like 75. He's like, so you're both right there. So you're like, you were not far off. He's like, now you're going to die. And he's like, he's like, so I was, I thought I was telling that we can make a deal. He's like, he's like, I'm thinking we can make a deal. And Butler's like, not with me. (laughs) I came here to hunt bear. Uh, what I love about that scene, like you know, like you said, this devastating scene where like the mythology that has sustained uh, McCabe in this town is like brutally undermined in front of in front of all the people that used to look up to him, is that he goes into Sheenan's, and a butler, this this like really scary mining company goon, is there, and he's holding court in Sheenan's exactly the same way McCabe did in the first part of the movie, and he's even got the huge fur coat. He's like he's the real version of what people thought McCabe was. And he's sitting there holding court, you know, regaling the locals with uh, tales of how you can kill a Chinaman for, and it's like a $50 fine. And, you know, new advances in mining explosives mean that you can just send a Chinaman down a mine and blow it up and then get like tin for 65 cents a ton or whatever. And it's just like, he, you know, like he, he's the real version of like the Western gunslinger. And like this character is like so evil and frightening. Mm-hmm. And well, he's it, British. Yeah, he's British too. He's he's literally like two smartest um, and scariest people in this town are now two Brits. Julie Christie yeah, the can't British, British people people keep like coming into McCabe's life and fucking it up. And I really love like he out toughs him, he outsmarts him, and he out charismas him in like one minute. And the scene where like we really can't do it justice talking about it. The scene where he's ta- like talking about the negotiations and trying to negotiate with Butler, who's just toying with him at this point, and he's like. How much did you ask for? Maybe t- tw- 10, 12,000. But I could go down to nine, eight, uh, s- s- seven, fifty, <laughs> five, maybe, si- maybe six, maybe six, fifty. Let's do six, fifty, which is like literally like $250 more than they were offering. Him. <laughs> and he's like, why don't we settle it there? And he's like, nope. 
And I also like how um, he's like talking about he's like you you named Pudgy McCabe, and like McCabe is like being he's sweating like he's really grilling him here, and he looks over at Sheehan who kind of looks at the floor because you know he he fucking talked he blabbed to Butler that this is Pudgy McCabe, yeah. and he's like you shoot Bill Crabtree I think his name is Bill, Bill Roundtree. Roundtree Bill Roundtree he's like he's like Bill Roundtree is my best friend, and McCabe is like. <laughs> Fuck. And he's like, well, no, he was shot in a poker game I was at, but like, you know, yeah. I didn't kill him. And then he's, he's like, you got, and he's like, you got ten seconds to get out of here before I get quite stern with you. And then he just sort of like <laughs> shuffles out the door. He's like, like a you so I'm not wearing a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like as soon as he leaves, Butler goes, so who's Bill Roundtree? And he's like, oh, it's just like some guy. And then he's like, oh, like uh, Pudgy McCabe shot him. And he goes, that guy, that guy I was just talking to. He goes, that guy hasn't killed anyone in his life. <laughs> And it's just like, like Butler is like the anti-McCabe because he really is like the true version of like, well, I mean, he's British, but like the, you know, the American myth of like, yeah, the, the John Wayne character, like the guy with the gun in the West is actually a really he, evil psycho. Butler has two goons with them, uh, like a guy who I think is, I think they have some bad name for him because I think he's half native. I can't remember, recall his name. And then he mm-hmm. has a young blonde kid who is just, the most evil character in this movie. He's hanging. Oh, and we, the next, yeah. like one of the next scenes is he, they're walking out of Sheehan's and they're at the stand at these, uh, the end of the rope bridges that go over like the ponds, which is a really cool part of the movie is I love the set. Yeah. Oh cool God. It's bridges. so cool. And it's like middle of winter and Keith Carradine is going to start walking on this bridge. And the blonde kid is like, Hey, you there. He's like, where, where do you think you're going? He's like, he's like, I want to buy some socks. I got a long ride. Mine are completely soaked through. And uh, he's like, well, what's wrong with yours? He's like, I wore him out running around that horror house. Gee, that's a neat place. Have you been there? He's like totally jovial <laughs> yeah. with this kid. Like he's super like nice. He's super nice. And then the kid is like, what's that gun you got on you? Yeah. He's like, is that a Colt? He's like, what do you got? What's that? Why you wear that gun for? He's like, oh, just because I can't hit nothing with it. He's like a Colt. He's like, them's good guns. Maybe something's wrong with it. I can fix it for you. He's like, why don't you take it out and show it to me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> he's, he's like, maybe I could fix it for you. And he's yeah. like, oh, okay. And he goes to reach for his gun, and that's a call for the kid to be able to draw on him. And the kid does it instantly and it's just boom, shoots boom, him, shoots him like in the chest. He and falls, just, and then he, the his body pond. just falls into this frozen pond. And it's just like it's it's such a it's such a harsh like rupture in like the the jaunty good times that have heretofore <laughs> populated yeah. the world of McCabe and Mrs. Miller because there's something about like how innocent the Keith Carradine character is and the fact that he is just killed for no reason and the scene of like just his body like sinking into this like ice covered pond is just so so yeah it's so unsettling and profound about, and sad mm-hmm. I was talking about the, the film The Shooting um, yesterday with Jack oh, Nicholson plays a very scary it's a western like an acid western but there's a little bit of similarities to these movies because like the character in that movie is Coley and he is like the, the bright eyed, like innocent, like very childlike character who, and everyone else in the movie is kind of like haggard or like kind of death driven. And Jack Nicholson is so evil to this, to this character. And that reminds me of that with this movie, because I love those two movies because they don't, they're both kind of anti-Westerns because they don't show the romanticism and the glory and the good guy versus the bad guy of, Typical westerns, the John Waynes, um, those types of movies, the spaghetti westerns. It shows how America really was. Whereas, mm-hmm. like this movie shows, someone with the gun is like, you don't want to be near them. Like we don't like yeah. guns in the town, which I yeah. love that because it's like, yeah, yeah. It really shows like how truly scary those types of people were and how you needed to avoid that. 
and even and, and even Keith Carradine's character has a gun, but he's like, I can't hit nothing with it. But he's a <laughs> yeah. no, he travels, so he has to have a gun on him. But it, the the true evil nature still wins. And I I I wanted to comment on this because we'll probably talk about it with Nashville too. A lot of people accuse Altman of being cynical, and for me, I guess I can see how you can view it that way. But I think all he does is show how humans actually are, and yeah. he shows the very good parts, the very bad parts, like. Constance is like she's this whore from like London, and you know people. You know, there's a taboo of someone being like a a a, a prostitute and all this stuff. But you, but you also, and she's a she's addicted to opium, all this stuff. You know, taboo American things. But she's also this very sweet, and she's like the most lovable person in the movie. Like you kind of fall for her too, along with McCabe. Like you see why he he loves her, and he's like a he's a pimp. He's not perfect either, but you you like McCabe too, and it shows all these wonderful things and um, characteristics that people have. And then you see the actual true evil, which is people yeah. like Butler and this kid. You know, it's crazy too because like you know, someone like conservatives might view people like McCabe or Constance as bad people, but those were the motherfuckers that built the country, and that's the one the people who ran things. And the real evil motherfuckers are people like Butler and the company men who overtook these small towns. So it's just so funny. Like everyone has their vices and everything, but it's just so great. And I don't find, I don't find Robert Altman to be cynical as people make him out to be. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because like, and you know, like you, McCabe and Mrs. Miller can be described as like a revisionist Western. And then we'll talk about Nashville, which is in, in certain respects, sort of a satire of American culture. But like, I totally agree with you, Andrew. Like, I don't think he is a cynic and I don't think he like, hates the American people or like sort of jeering at like what, you know, sort of rubes and oafs we are because like we are like, this is the truth of the human condition. And I really just regard all of his films, but these two in particular as like, they're not mean, they're not cynical. They are true and beautiful in the way that like only great art really is. Because like you said, Andrew, like they really just show the true, like the true face of the human condition and like the, the, the social organism that is America and like its constituent parts. I love that in this and more in like Nashville, he can be like satirical without being judgmental, I think is like a special talent of his. Like you can tell he's never judging the people that he's really like making fun of. He's just like presenting them. But also um, real quick before we move on, Andrew, did you notice that um, Jack Nicholson's ass in the shooting, how caked up he is? He has that movie. So him and Millie Perkins have some of. The, I said it when I recorded the episode on it. The next time it came in, Mrs. Miller has my favorite drip in anything because he has like this sick ass black hat, these leather black gloves he wears the entire movie, and she even says, "You never take those off, do you?" He has like this black vest. He has like the the wrap, like the ring around his arm, like he's a poker dealer, and he has like this like nice floral print shirt and these tight black pants and his ass is like popping in it yeah and he's where he has a full pillow shoved into his ass <laughs> it's so <laughs> cool and when Billy Perkins says when they were getting um when they're before they went to go shooting Jack Nicholson was like come on we got to go to a western costume and she picked out this hat and put it on and he goes no I want that and he put it on and that's <laughs> the hat he wears in the movie because he was just always a diva basically and McQueen. uh yeah he was he's great in that but McCabe Probably my favorite drip out of any Western in this, like, well, Butler kind of uh, one-ups him with, like, his big white fur coat and yeah. bigger black hat and, like, his giant shotgun. Um, but, um, just a mountain of a man. 
Mm-hmm. McCabe is this, this short little twerp compared to him. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, it's Warren Beatty. So he's like, this was one of the most handsome dudes ever, right? The yeah. dude was notorious for dating like 200 actresses. And he gets, and he's so lovable. And then he still gets one up by this butler guy. And it's like Will said, like, he's like, he's like the Giga Chad version of McCabe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like, uh, uh, speaking of yourself, like Warren Beatty. As, as, you know, as as a legendary ladies' man, but also as just like such a magnetic, like charismatic screen presence, I just want to talk about uh, uh, two scenes before we get to like sort of the climax of this movie, and the one in particular in which like Warren Beatty's whole character in this movie kind of plays against like Warren Beatty, like as as a as a public figure or a celebrity, in that like he's charismatic, but like he's also he's kind of he's kind of shy, like he's not not shy, but I would say like he's a little bit like kind of uh, bashful. He's, yeah, like he's just, anyway. he trips over himself and he's just like, he's just, uh, so in love with Julie Christie and like, and, and one of my favorite scenes is when he knows that like, you know, his life is in danger and he tries to go to enlist the services of a lawyer, which is my other favorite scene in this movie. Oh yeah. There's so a scene real, where he's alone. The worst villain in the scene, movie. <laughs> there's a scene where he's, um, alone in, uh, alone in his room muttering to himself and like he's, you know, he's he's basically like worried that he's going to die, like he's going to be killed. So he's like very desperate. But all that's on his mind is Julie Christie, and it's like his his mumbling asides to himself are so funny and heartbreaking because he's just getting dressed and getting ready to like go into town to like solicit the services of this attorney. And all he's talking about, he goes, he says, I. I feel like I'm gonna have my heart's gonna bust every time I look at you, Mrs. Miller. And he's just talking to himself and he goes, Just one time I want you to be sweet without no money. And then he goes, I got poetry in me, but I ain't gonna put it down on paper. I ain't no educated man, but you're just <laughs> you're freezing my soul. You're freezing my soul. And that's when he says, I suppose a horror the a horror is the only kind of woman I know. And it's just like that scene is just so beautiful. And mm-hmm. just like he doesn't know what to do with to himself, yeah. He, like he's so scared, but he just like he wants to tell her how he feels. Like yeah, it's like, like when you just... when you actually get that feeling of butterflies for someone, and you don't even know how to like. You could go like a, a, a long time with like you know talking people up, like kind of having some kind of like flirtatious manner. Like you get you get laid, and then you meet that one person, and you don't know what the fuck to do with yourself. You're like fuck, like. I don't know how to be funny towards them. Like they got me all like I got, I got my mm-hmm. stomach hurts. Like, I don't know how to even talk to this person. Cause they make me feel this way. And that's I how it's so funny. Cause, he, Cause he's this dude who's just like, he doesn't like, he ain't no educated man. He doesn't know how to put it into words. He's like, sometimes I want to, he's like, I look at you and I'm, I'm, I just, I think I'm going to bust. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite. You're the, line. <laughs> you're the finest looking woman I ever seen. And, but then, okay. So then he goes back to the town where he originally bought his, Bear uh, Paul. bought his string of uh, girls from, and he goes to see like the local lawyer in town, played by William Devane, in a great one scene cameo of this lawyer character who is so funny because McCabe is just basically there being like, um, can you help me not be killed by this mining company? <laughs> yeah. And William Devane just launches into this like soliloquy defending our wonderful free enterprise system. And he's like, the law is he says he's gonna represent him pro bono. And he's like, the law is here to protect the little guy like you. And he's like, look at that mining company over there. Like, do you think do you think that their shareholders would like the public knowing that they're not imbued with a sense of fair play? 
And then he just he says he's like, "We're gonna strike a blow for the little guy. You could have dinner with Williams Jen, William Jennings Bryant." And then McCabe is just going, "Can I just? I don't want to die." Can you, yeah, can he you literally says, "I just don't want to get killed." <laughs> My he's, like, we're gonna, he's like, "We're gonna fight him in the courts." And yeah, he's like, yeah. He's like, "Yeah, it's gonna be in the newspapers." And it's and McCabe um, is still like, "Uh, yeah." This is the first speech check that McCabe like the first like uh, perception check McCabe passes for the entire movie like since the uh, mining guys showed up when he just kind of scopes out that this guy is totally full of shit and cannot help him at all. And um, I love the part of the guy's uh, huge soliloquy where he's like, um, you know, this free market system of ours, it works and we can protect the little guy and the big guy. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> ultimate. I'm just a little guy. I'm just a little guy. And these guys like, are really, they're big guys. It's, they're big. It's so, it's so funny how this that thing goes back, how far it goes back that like capitalism just fucks you so hard. Like they they still constantly talk about like what about small business owners? It's like motherfucker, yeah. it's not gonna happen. Like, and you know what? Uh, watching these two movies back to back, I think it's so funny that in Nashville, the uh, the replacement party candidate, Hal Philip Walker, his sort of uh, the sort of like uh, Greek chorus of his like uh, propaganda van that rolls around town. The Hal Philip Walker political worldview, even though he's opposed to lawyers, is basically what William Devane's character speaks about in this movie. We have like yeah. this small business entrepreneurial spirit that wants to protect the little guy against the big guy. But guess mm-hmm. what? It's just like there, there are there are no little guys and big guys. It's just the forces of capital grinding everyone down, and right. like big, big or small, it's just like the half smart pimp. No matter what he's built, no matter what his American dream is, as soon as the, the, like the the big bank take little bank, and that's there's all. There's always gonna be matters. a bigger fish. Yeah, every mm-hmm. time there's always a bigger fish. There's no way to escape it. Like there's literally no escape. You should have just so, taken the money. <laughs> But also, like, uh, also hilarious. Remember when we talked earlier about how um, the local oafs start talking like McCabe because they think he's smart? As soon as McCabe comes back to town, even though he knows he's doomed and this lawyer isn't going to help him, he starts spitting this whole line of game to Julie Christie about, he's like, I'm talking about busting up these trusts and monopolies. (laughs) (laughs) He just starts repeating the lawyer's line of bullshit back to Julie Christie. Who, uh, like, and, and then the scene where, like, she actually is sweet on him without money. And she sort of, like, consoles him and she's like, it's going to be okay. And sort of, like, like rests his head on, on her shoulder and, like, she sort of, like, like, pets his hair. But then she leaves in the middle of the night because she kind of knows what's going to happen. And the next morning, McCabe wakes up and Butler and his goons are, like, stalking the streets of the town. And it's snowing. For McCabe. And, it, and like, mm-hmm. it's like the whole... I, let's just talk about the whole climax of this movie because it is yeah. so, so breathtaking. So what happened it's incredible. is they, it snowed really fucking bad the day they were shooting. And even Warren Beatty was like, we can't like we can't shoot today. We got to put it off. And Altman was like, nope, we're going to keep going. And then they um, when it wasn't snowing, they uh, fogged in the snow effects, which looked pretty great in the, that, that climax. So there's scenes where you can tell when the real snow is going, but even the fake snow in the movie looks pretty good. Yeah. And the whole town is just covered in snow and it looks amazing. It's like one of my all time favorite sets on any, like I said earlier, the whole set, the whole movie, it looks great, but this is such a good climactic scene. And, um, McCabe knows that Butler and his two goons are going to be looking for him. And I think he first, before the church catches on fire, I think he goes to the church, right? And the priest is in there. Yeah. 
he goes up to the steeple to get like a bird's eye view of the whole town and like see mm-hmm. see how they're fanning out like where they're gonna go but then loses his gun <laughs> to the reverend yeah, his gun is stolen by the reverend <laughs> who tries to shoot who's like get out of the church or i'm gonna shoot you and he's like hey man <laughs> Can, I can really I need that gun. No. I think he finds he finds McCabe to be like evil, so he's like not worthy to be in the church. He's like, get the fuck yeah. out of my church, essentially. He's a whoromonger. He's a yeah, mm-hmm. a flesh peddler. And then literally, f- that does not work out well for the priest because like, nope. Ten seconds later, one of these hardened Butler murderers in. kicks open the door, sees him with a gun, and just blasts his brains all over the wall. And, and you see his arm just like oh yeah, blasts like his, his arm, arm off. gets shot off by this fucking bl- this blender <laughs> brutal. Bus, as Julie Christie describes it. And then from there, it's like uh, that, like uh, a lamp um, is knocked over in the church, and the church catches on fire. And then, like bit by bit, the entire town notices that the church is on fire, and they are like, they're like, the church is on fire, it's burning. And then, like the big steam-powered tractor comes out. They like knock down like a, like a you know like a, a little aqueduct that they have, and they organize a bucket brigade to stop this fire from spreading and to, to quash the blaze that's consumed the church. But while this is going on, like everyone in the town is focused on this and McCabe is just sort of like, uh, like stealth sneaking. mission. Yeah. He's on a stealth he literally mode. He has to do like, a, like Metal Gear Solid mission to get <laughs> yeah, around this he has town. To hide in a box. To hide from Butler and his two goons. <laughs> and like, he sort of sneaks from building to building around town. He stops in a bar to get, he like hides under the bar to fix himself a whiskey and egg cocktail. Yeah. One more drink. And um, at some point he gets a gun though. Yeah. No, yeah. He, he gets a revolver and then like he gets the drop on one of Butler's guys, like the, the baby face dude who kills Keith Carradine and like he kills him. He shoots him in the back and, but like not before he squeezes off too. And McCabe is hit. And mm-hmm. from there he's sort of like, he's limping around town. He's bleeding. But like miraculously, he does manage to kill the second goon. So it's just yeah, now like holds it's an angle v- and shoots him through the window. Yeah, yeah. So now it's one v one, him versus Butler, who's this like you know Anton Chigurh like force of nature that's just like this this force of death that's just stalking him. Towers over him, like, Warren. He's B. like a yeti. Yeah. he looks like yeah. a yeti with that coat on. Yeah, and, like he he sees McCabe. <clears throat> like you know, as the townspeople are putting out this blaze, he sees McCabe like making his way up this snowdrift. And he draws a bead on him with his huge gun, pulls the trigger, fires, and you see McCabe collapse and just his body slide down the hill. This giant snowdrift. In this giant snowdrift. And Butler is like walking through like waist-high snowdrifts. Just sort of like, like you know, um, and this guy's Swagger like six is, five. <laughs> yeah, like Swagger oh, no, is Warren Beatty's six two, so he must be like seven <laughs> feet tall. Literally, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, this huge day. So he like he like just sort of like pushes his way through this huge snowdrift into what he thinks is McCabe's prone body, but no, he missed him. McCabe like thinking he's dead. He's standing right in front of him. McCabe just re- like reaches like picks up his revolver, points it at him, domes him. He pulls out mm-hmm. his, Dar- his legendary Dar- Derringer. Yeah, yeah. But you never and that I love this scene because he kills Butler. He's already, he's injured himself, but he kills Butler directly between the eyes, and he really was him. He really was Pudgy McCabe. Yeah, he, yeah, he really exactly. was a gunslinger. Yeah, and he just owns Butler. Like you're terrified for him because like he's so <laughs> fucked, and he yeah. fucking owns Butler. Who right who between said the that eyes. Man's, that man's never killed anyone in his life? And it's like, well, it's so he has now. <laughs> he has he now. has now. Whether yeah. he did or not before. He, um, it's, it's so cool. But before we get to like the, the very end of this movie, I just want to talk about like uh, the church on fire and like the bucket brigade. And I like how like in Altman's focus on these kind of ad hoc communities 
like we see it in MASH, we see it in Popeye, we'll see it again in Nashville, we'll also see it like uh, the earthquake at the end of Shortcuts. These, mm-hmm. these movies of these ensemble casts where you go in and out of these people's lives, and then at the end of the movie, there's some disaster or some event that happens that just cuts through all Brings the hustle people and together. bustle and the wheeling and dealing and all the talking. And there's no dialogue at the end of this movie. It's just people uh, you know, doing an action to perform a task, like to get a job done that just sort of cuts through. It just sort of like flattens everything else that you've seen before and really clarifies it. And it, it's 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 sort of a turn that he does over and over again in his movies, and and like you know and and just like in this in this case it's the church fire, but like it's the idea that like life is going on and happening, and the most important thing in the event of the movie is happening, in terms of like McCabe's struggle for life and death, but no one in the town notices or cares. It's mm-hmm. just it's all happening in the background because it's just like no, like everyone thinks they're the protagonist of reality, but really all we are is just sort of like. These tiny pieces. We all are a much larger social simultaneously almost. Yeah. Yeah. So the town the town rejoices as it puts out the fire. And now we really get to like one of the most gut wrenching endings of a movie in, in, in movie history. I cry every time I see this movie at the very end because McCabe has won. He's beaten the mining company thugs and the town is rejoicing. And we just see him struggle to walk through like this, this foot and these feet of snow and he's just like shuffling slower and slower and then he just sits down in this huge snow drift and all you hear is the wind blow and the snow piles up around him and then we see Julie Christie is alone in one of the Chinese opium dens and like she's just fixed and that Leonard Cohen song comes on it goes like, I'm just a station on your way. I know I'm not your lover. And the camera zooms in on her eye as she stares at this sort of, like, marble, like, I don't know, opium bottle. And it's just, like, the reflection on this marble and, like, in her eye. And then, like, it's just the sound of the wind howling. And Warren McCabe has just sat down, and he's just dead. He's just, he, like, yeah. he, he almost, he almost, almost wins. But it's mm-hmm. just not enough. And the way he just sits down and he's just this like like mound of clothes and it's just as it gets further and further erased by the white of the snow as it just piles up on his body. And it's Julie Christie knowing that his outcome is already assured and she is just alone, alone by herself in like, you know, thinking of him in this like opium haze or whatever. And it's just like then the credits roll as she focuses on like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. It's this like, sort of jade or marble sort of like, uh, I don't know, like vase or something. And she's turning it over and the way the light catches it. And like, sort of like that's the last image that you see in the movie is the credits roll. And it's there's like just an something... extreme close-up lens. Like yeah. truly like you could see like uh, an ant in full, an ant would fill up the frame. like And it like just keeps playing as the credits roll. Just this image yeah. of her, yeah. like you could tell she's just like on opium, just inspecting it and, probably knows that Kate, uh, McCabe is probably dead. Yeah. And the Leonard Cohen song with the line is so perfect. And it's almost like a, the movie becomes like, it could have been called like the legend of McCabe or something. Like it becomes like a folklore tale to me, like a, almost like a, even like a Greek tragedy style story. Like it's just something that could be told in different ways and different settings almost over and over. And it's like so perfect and so romantic and I don't find it in any way cynical like people like accuse Altman all the time 
of being, like I said earlier, I think it's like one, possibly one of the, like it's the most beautiful ending you could imagine basically. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's such a moving, like, cause, cause it's sort of like, what is this movie? Like the movie doesn't really define itself until the very end. And the same thing with Nashville. Like you don't, none of it really like, it, it's all great, but like the ending just puts such like what's clarity the and definition on this, on this very like muddled and kind of like Ill, hard to define thing, and then really what the movie is at the end to me is just such a moving love story and such a tragic one, and it's just like I said, like this movie moves me to tears every time I see it. It's it's it, yeah. it's an astonishing piece of work. Well, this in Nashville and like a lot of other Altman, they don't have the payoff like you'd expect, but like he really is just he's just showing America, like he really distills yep. America for what it really is. Like it's a love story, but it's also the story about Americans and our nature where we're all kind of shitty, but we still feel compelled to help each other when push comes to shove. And we're not as cynical and selfish as we all think we are. We don't, we're all like mistrusting and paranoid, but simultaneously constantly yearning for a connection from each other that we don't know how to develop. And it's like, he does it with like everything. Like all of his movies has that kind of that, that little touch. And it's like the Altman touch. And I find him to be like, he sees the worst in us, but he believes in people. And I think it's yeah. very, I think it's a very beautiful thing. I, I do think it's a little cynical, the ending, because, you know, it's very, but it is like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, a microcosm of America. It's like, I think the ending is very telling because, yeah, like the whole movie is so blurry and like unclear, like visually even. Just like, um, very unclear because of like the processes they used to kind of shoot it and um you know and then at the very end we get this like flash of just like perfect like insignificant zoomed in detail on this like um like terracotta pot or whatever and or this like opium pipe or whatever she's looking at and it's like um you know this you know this broader thing of the American frontier, the West, and this, you know, little fragment of it is the true, like, a true kind of, like, piece of it. Um, a truer piece of it than anything with, like, John Wayne in it or anything like that. It's the real kind of story of America, just, like, big business just crushing this fucking guy. And this and- driving this beautiful woman to do drugs it's you know <laughs> it happens many I, times I hate when that right and but then, I hate but when then that simultaneously the rest of the town was putting out a fire together yeah and they were doing yeah, yeah they were community cohering and helping each other like the, the, the best of the best of the american spirit but like it's it's the, it's that it's the focus in on her eye and her fixation on this like this this little yeah the opium pipe or whatever it is the way it's just like everything that everything that's happened in the movie, everything that the movie stands in for of this like microcosm of American history and society is just reduced. The entire universe is reduced to just this small detail that Julie Christie is looking at in an opium stupor because it's just like, like everything else has been condensed into this one reality that she had someone she liked for a little while, but not anymore. And she's just back to being alone and it's mm-hmm. just it, it is so devastating. Like I'm I'm choking yeah. up thinking about it right now. Yeah. 
her big dreams gone, you know, her smile <laughs> yeah. and ambition gone. <laughs> and uh, to your point about it, it, it being cynical, I think, Andrew, it comes back to your, uh, what you said about Altman, where he's like, if my friends like all my movies, I think there's something wrong with them. I think it's sort of like the most cynical pose you can have in America is like an earnest belief in like that, like being cynical is wrong or that like it, that it's not a useful, a useful lens, which, which through to see the world. And it's just a, in, in, in reading or preparing for today's episode, I just have this uh, one quote from an article called The Art of the Deal in McCabe and Miss Miller and The Dissolve by Noel Murray, where I think really puts it uh, a, a, like a really puts a pin in like the whole tragic context of McCabe and Miss Miller. Uh, he writes, he's just another willful guy with a modest dream swallowed up by their Darwinian American economics. Both his literal girlfriend and his metaphorical true love, free enterprise, are addicts and mercenaries. Mm hmm. So there you go. Period. Uh, that's America, and which brings us into the next movie, Nashville. Uh, do you guys want to take a quick break, or do yeah, you want to just dive straight in? Okay, cool. I was. I remembered a tweet I made because I kept always. Branson was singing. Uh, Branson always loves when I do the Leonard Cohen bit. It's like Leonard Cohen, Suzanne voice, and she wants to make you a sandwich. She usually takes you into her kitchen and she gives you a nice soda, and you know you want to drink it. <laughs> just like doing that about anything is so funny to me. Just describing your day in Leonard Cohen right. song lyrics. Like I'll do it like and in my I'm head. Just I'm like a man and, and I, thinking. That he's going to be going shopping, but shopping for chicken pot pies isn't very good, <laughs> but they're out of them. You've been the craving some Totinos because you <laughs> haven't had them in a minute, but you need to buy a candle because they're out of candles. And it works. Like That's all everyone yeah. did, but it worked because it's like, it just sounds good. Also, he was like notoriously horny. Like You watch oh, yeah. interviews with like, his lovers, and they're like, he was a very sexual man. It's just like, oh, really? I, I oh yeah, guess. it's hard to tell from his music. Yeah, it's just like all about uh, you know, I love, I dig this woman, and I'm her lover, but you know, we just can't be together. It's like yeah, because you're fucking like five other women at the same time, Leonard, <laughs> like Keith Carradine in Nashville. Man, also another singer, you know that. Yeah, because I'm easy. I'm easy. We'll get into it, but I mean, good on him for scooping up Christina Rains like immediately. Ooh, 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 woo, ah, woo. Okay, I'm back. All right, gang. Uh, we are back to talk, uh, moving on from McCabe and Miss Miller uh, to Nashville, a movie really 10 times as epic in its scope and like the magnitude of, of, of what it's conveying, uh, even more than McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, it don't worry me. Robert Altman's Nashville is five days in the lives of 24 unforgettable people. That's a lot of characters, so listen closely. Shelley Duval is the wide-eyed groupie doing what all groupies do so well. Keenan Wynn is the uncle who doesn't understand this wild girl in the sequined hot pants. David Hayward is the sensitive young boy who answers the room for rent sign and who has a big surprise in store for everyone. Christina Raines is the female singer in a trio who's married to one of them, Alan Nichols, but spends a lot of time with the other one. And David Arkin is the chauffeur who knows all the inside stories and is ready to tell them. Timothy Brown is a black singer who's made it, but not everybody is happy about that. Jeff Goldblum is the cycle freak who's everywhere the action is. Barbara Harris is the would-be superstar who's running away from husband Burt Remsen, who's chasing her through the wilds of Nashville. 
Nashville is about a lot of things and a lot of people. See all 24 of them and the outrageous things they do in Robert Altman's Nashville. Nashville is a movie that really defies uh, description of plot because really it is, it's just uh, you spend five days in Nashville with something like two dozen characters that sort of like you go in and out of each other's lives and you follow them around. Nothing really happens until the very end. But it is just a, a portrait of like the lives of these people. And, you know, by the way, uh, it, it's a movie that takes place in the future from when the movie came out. The movie was released in 1975. And it takes place in a, a slightly fictionalized 1976. Tennessee on the eve of a presidential primary. And you just sort of follow the lives of people either in or tangentially connected to uh, the music industry, the country Western music industry. And the thing is, like, the movie takes place, it is all about country music, but not really. That's like the entire focus on the country music industry is really incidental to what this movie is about, despite the fact that there are so many brilliant original country Western songs in this movie. It is just a template, once again, for this, like, larger statement about America on the eve of its bicentennial about where we're all going and the world that you, I, and everyone listening to this podcast right now currently inhabit is really the one that Nashville depicts and predicts. Jeff Goldblum is a psycho freak who's everywhere the action is. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Goldblum so, in this really is like a... Tom Bombadil character, yeah. Yeah, like a, a Hermes or, you know, like... A, yeah a Greek god kind of like Just a, a through, character he's everywhere. He's like always hanging out with like babes or doing magic tricks. And he like doesn't mm -hmm. talk. Yeah. He's got like this crazy outfit on. I mean, just the opening, we start off on the, um, like, we're probably not going to, we're not going to go beat by beat through this movie because it's, <laughs> it's like, impossible. Hard. Yeah, impossible. It's impossible. Watch, we'd have to do like a like DVD commentary while watching it, you know? Yeah. 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 Which might be a fun bonus, but um, the opening we start off with the departure of Hal Philip Walker's um, campaign sloganeering truck. Or wait, no, we start with a, a record commercial. Like, oh yeah, like a time, a time, like brilliant opening credits of like it's one of those like uh, it's a parody of one of those Time Life music collections that like all oh, your favorite songs are here. Except it's like the opening credits of the movie, like all oh, your favorite stars: Shelley Duvall, Lily Tomlin, Keith Carradine, like. <laughs> And then, like, Robert it goes to, Nashville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then we begin with, like I said, I, at the beginning of this episode, there's sort of like the Greek chorus that sort of frames the action throughout the five days that we spend with these two dozen characters in Nashville, Tennessee. It's framed like the, and the play takes place during the backdrop of a presidential primary in which a sort of weirdo third party candidate named Hal Philip Walker and his replacement party are, you know, sort of ma making some headway here and like maybe perhaps could be elected president. And you see like there's this van that traverses the city of Nashville playing, you know, on, on loudspeakers, just sort of the, uh, the wisdom of one Hal Philip Walker and the like ramblings. And, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and like, how, yeah. how would you describe Hal Philip Walker? It's sort of like a proto Ron Paul or Ross yeah. Perot, like third party candidate. It's like we're gonna uh, go back to wait. We're gonna go back to like our roots. We're gonna. It's kind of like a make America great again, but it's still more like, it's still more like center almost. It's like he's a very weird candidate from what yeah, you can he, gather. He's like, um, his stuff is like, you know, I didn't know, I didn't have any money till I was twenty seven, and he's like, I know what money can get you, and I know what it can't get you. And one of my favorite things he says is, um. In today's day and age, a car costs more 
then it cost for Columbus to come all the way to America. That's politics. <laughs> what? what does He's, that mean? Uh, he, <laughs> he hates lawyers. He, he hates lawyers. He says like, uh, uh, like uh, uh, of the 350 people in Congress, 288 of them are lawyers. He's like, folks, have you ever asked a lawyer for what the time of day? He probably told you how to build the watch. And it's just like, it's this mix of like things that are like half seemingly sensible and then half utter mm-hmm. crankery. Like he wants yeah. to change the national anthem because nobody understands. Because it was <laughs> written by lawyers. Like I said, it was written by sucks. lawyers. Yeah. He was, he, this was like the proto version of uh, Alex Jones in Waking Life. You know, when Alex Jones had like yeah. some sensibility to him when he was young where he's like, don't trust uh, companies, don't trust everything politicians say. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. And then he turned into like, this obviously Alex Jones now, but it's like, yeah. this is kind of like what half of like what uh, Philip Walker is talking about is kind of like that where you're like, you know, he's right. Like, fuck those motherfuckers. But he's like, but we got to help the small businesses. It's just like, well, yeah. well fuck those guys too, you know? <laughs> and like, like this movie is really like all about the ensemble cast and like the technique that we talked about earlier of just giving actors, like letting them create their own characters and like having a screenplay, but like really letting the actors like decide for themselves, like how their characters would behave or like just allowing them to inhabit fully these, these individuals as like fully realized people just going about their daily life. And like, that's really what drives the action in this movie. And like a perfect example of that, and like one of the most impressive parts of this movie is like all of the original songs in it, which are allowed like like we we hear like probably almost a dozen songs in this movie that are allowed to like you hear the entire song, you see the mm-hmm. entire performance of it. It's not just snippets of it. And Altman, for all of the actors in this movie who play musicians, they wrote all of this themselves each of the songs that they perform in this movie. And what I love so much, it goes back to this idea of like, is Altman a cynic? Is he sneering at American culture? And it's like, well, yes and no. And I think the perfect example of this is all of the great country western songs in this movie that are all such funny parodies of country western music, but sort of similar to E1 in this regard, Andrew. Also, really good country western songs on their own. (laughs) Yeah, like like, uh, they're except for Connie White. Except for Connie White. What I really, (laughs) what I really like is. there's this awful, awful BBC woman that goes from scene to scene. Opal. And she's, oh, my God. Opal. And she <laughs> annoys everybody she meets. <laughs> no, like it's so funny. She's my favorite character. She's my favorite so character in the she's movie. Like, she's, like, weird and patronizing and, like, kind of racist. It's insanely <laughs> yes. racist. She's, like, this... She's such a weirdo, but she's she goes to to meet... um She goes to the studio and uh, to see Haven... And Haven Hamilton is his name, played by Henry Gibson. Yeah, like the who was like the, the, like, the, the, like the king of Nashville. He's right? the king of Nashville. Yeah, yeah. so he's and wearing the worst wig in, in history. His son, his son is taking this woman, or he's going around the studio, and she shows up in the studio while Haven's recording this awful song. No, we must be doing something right, right. the last two hundred years. He, he's like yeah. bitching. He, he's like bitching about the piano player Frog, who's like this like total hippie, like this dude with like a huge fro and like aviators get your haircut this is nashville like he's a yeah. like total like old school boomer type and like he kicks her out and his son takes over to another studio that's smaller where we see lily tomlin is recording with the big gospel group the choir big, yeah black and gospel choir this this is a smaller studio it's like an all-black choir except for lily tomlin and their song is so much better it's like so <laughs> energetic and like you kind of like want to join in with them it's great and then it comes back to Haven Hamilton as fucking old ass dog shit, stupid country bullshit <laughs> that he thinks is like the best shit ever. And it's like, well, I wouldn't want to stick around in there either. And like he cuts it. He ends it early. It's like when you could get like a real like he asked for another piano player with another name. What's pig? 
pig. <laughs> yeah. He's like, get pig instead of frog. <laughs> yeah. And, and he tells him to get um, a haircut. And he and I love when he I says love to Opal, he's like, he's like, I don't want no strangers in my recording. She can buy the record when it comes out. You know? And, she's, <laughs> and then she, she like comes to the choir studio. She's like, oh, it's so small. She's like, I was at all the studios in London and they're massive. This is kind of cozy. Like she's so, oh, she's so judgy. She, it's said, like, it's yeah. she, says, she says of the black gospel choir and like as, in the opening credits, she's just like, it, 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 it's just like Africa. He's like they're, they're frenzied bodies, yeah. and just it's just you can see their naked bodies beneath <laughs> the, the savage bodies. It's like so such a racist. Freak. She says and, um, the first thing she says that's like in that scene is of Lily Tomlin. Is she a missionary? I ask because I just went to Kenya, and she reminds me of a missionary. She's like, uh, she's just because like, she was singing. wonderful. She was converting them by the dozens, and like doing like this horrible shit. And she, but she's like this London Brit that like thinks it's so great. And it's really funny because, like, it's kind of Altman, like, in it's a way, Altman, like, also it, making fun of the British with one character. I think character. it's Altman kind of making fun of himself. Like, I view the uh, the Opal character who's this, like, complete nitwit BBC reporter who's there to make a documentary on Nashville. And all she does is just, like, interject herself awkwardly into other people's, like, conversations mm-hmm. and just generally views America as this, like, primitive backwater that she's like 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 she's filming a nature documentary or something yeah just this has is like the jungle it's the amazing stupidest, most condescending observations about everything like racist and david attenborough that as, yeah <laughs> yeah racist david attenborough yeah she's played by uh geraldine chaplin who's the daughter yeah. of charlie chaplin uh, her character is so funny and i think like she's one of, she's the first character that you meet in this movie and i think well, that's altman and the screenwriter joan uh sorry joan twixberry and uh, like I, I think it's them commenting on their own roles as the writers of this movie as like outsiders to Nashville culture who are sort of observing and commenting on it. But like they're making fun of themselves because they make her the most insufferable nitwit on the planet. And also Joan Tewksbury is um, she left her um, husband and child to be the script girl on McCabe and Mrs. Miller and worked up with Altman on all of his movies up to this point. And um, she wrote the script for this one. And I think that's really cool. And but also like to your point of her like terrible documentary, there's one point where her driver is like um, or one of the drivers in the movie is like, um, you know, I could take you around Nashville, show you all the sites. I could tell you some stuff about this town you wouldn't believe such as and he, she just interrupts him and is like, I'm sorry, I have a rule about gossiping with servants. <laughs> <What? You dumbass. laughs> like she's oh, trying she's... to get like the nitty gritty details and this guy knows everything she's like yeah oh i i certainly couldn't talk to you <laughs> yeah there's there's a scene later i love it like it's later like middle of the movie where elliot gould shows up to uh yep. haven hamilton's like abode and she's hanging out with his son still she's like talking to someone i he's and, singing a song like he's, he's, she got out of him like she's like he's like oh my dad like never wanted me to be a musician and then she's like oh but you must you must share one of your songs with me and then like he starts singing this song he wrote to her that's like terrible and like you can see her checking out and then in the middle of his song she goes Oh my God! Is that Elliot Gould? And just gets up and walks away. She immediately goes to annoy Elliot Gould, and Elliot goes like, "Oh yeah, um yeah, like nice to meet you." And like his his woman is like, "Okay, like all right, okay, okay." And like Kevin Hamilton is like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Like, who is she? Why is she yeah. here? Basically, and he uh, someone is like, "Well, that's the price of uh, you know fame." And Elliot Gould's like, "Well, it certainly is." But it's yeah. like he just playing himself. Like it's so funny that like yeah, I love Elliot Gould. Like, let's just slap him in there too. 
Yeah, Elliot Gould and Julie Christie both in this playing themselves. Right. Play themselves. And they're just like yeah. total outsiders. At one point, um, I th- is it the Ned Beatty character that's like, they he tell doesn't him, know like, who Elliot Gould is. Yeah. He's like, oh, shoot. I, I, t- I told him, I talked to him like he was just some guy off the street. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> Connie White is um, talking to um, Haven Hamilton after Haven like shakes hands with Julie Christie. And um, she's like, who was that? And um, Haven Hamilton's like, that's Julie Christie. She won an Academy Award. And Connie White just bursts into laughter and is like, you're so bad. <laughs> and he's like, no, she really <laughs> yeah. did win an Academy no, and, Award. And she goes, she can't even comb her hair. Which is great because Julie Christie is like big, frizzy, curly hair. Yeah, just complete outsiders to like, this world Like the celebrities of Nashville. of Nashville is what matters. Yeah. Like Haven yeah. Hamilton like, and Connie White and, and Barbara okay, Jean. Yeah. And like, okay, the scene where Elliot Gould plays himself attending a party at Haven Hamilton, the king of Nashville's house. And what's so interesting about that scene is that not Elliot Gould doesn't know who Haven Hamilton is, and Haven yeah. Hamilton doesn't know who Elliot Gould is, and they both <laughs> kind of have to be told why they're important. And then immediately, yeah. like, they relate to each other as stars, and when Opal comes over to bother Elliot Gould, <laughs> Haven says, he's like, I won't, I, won't tolerate, I won't tolerate rudeness to stars in my house. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think that's so important though. I think that's so important because this movie is about Hollywood looking at Nashville, who is which is looking at Hollywood as well. It's like these two sites yeah. of American cultural reproduction looking, observing each other, and having like American culture created and then reflected back on each other. But like the fact that this is about Nashville, which is unlike Hollywood, not the creator of a global American culture. I mean, like, look, there are country music fans all over the world, but, like, Nashville is a very specific, idiosyncratic, like, zone of American cultural production. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, it is sort of incidental, like I said, that it's about country western music, because it's really about American culture. And, like, Nashville is just this, like, very closed-off universe where, like, again, like, if, if you're a star in Nashville, you're the king of Nashville, but, like, o- outside of it in California, people may not know who the fuck you are. I also yeah. uh, really earlier in the movie, one of my favorite parts is when there's a, a traffic jam because there's an accident on the on the freeway. Yeah. And basically all the characters we met so far are all in cars behind this and stuck in this traffic jam. And everyone is kind of getting out their cars, like opening beers. People are selling each other stuff, giving each other snacks like Lily. Lily Tomlin is like, I think, with Opal and like they get like some like some popsicles from the ice yeah. cream truck. And everyone's kind of chilling. It's like a hot summer day in, in Tennessee. And then, like, Opal is, like, kind of wandering around and starts talking to people, and she meets Tommy Brown, the black country yeah, was, singer. He's he, sort of based on Charlie Pride. Like, and yeah. she's, like, yeah. she, she, like, he opens up the back of this big, like, kind of somewhat camper van, and they're um, all, like, it's kind of entourages in there, but she doesn't know this is Tommy Brown. He's like, oh, yeah, he's back to, like, put on his makeup and all that stuff, but he'll be out in a minute. And, like, it's him. She doesn't know it, and he's, like, fucking with her the whole time. He's like, I'd like you to meet uh, <laughs> Miss, Mrs. Brown. She's like, you're his wife. And she's like you know, so amazed by black people. Like, yeah. Oh, there's and she goes, like, she like, goes, like oh. I said, she's basically like curious creatures. Like she doesn't yeah. say a lot, but like, that's essentially like how she acts. Like she's such yeah. a weirdo. Lord knows the South. I don't know all the problems in the South here. And then Tommy Brown goes, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, not, we're very liberal here. Very liberal people. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, oh, pretty, that's yeah. wonderful. He's like, that's he's simply he's wonderful. Like, he's a liberal guy. <laughs> and, but um, what's funny is that like, he's accused uh, at like a bar, um, by another black man of being basically like, you know, like he's of being white essentially. Like yeah. He calls yeah. him white. And like, he's like yells at him for like hanging out with people like Kevin Hamilton and stuff. And he gets like kicked out of the bar cause he's drunk. And like, they're like, you're drunk. He's like, I don't care if I'm drunk. He's still like the whitest 
in in Nashville, and uh, it's kind of funny the dynamic that is there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like, you you bring up the car crash, which is like sort of it's similar to like the church burning down. It's like these sort of like minor catastrophes that sort of um, uh, pinpoint all of our characters in in this world. And then like the movie itself is like a series of live performances or like events at which like many of the main characters of the movie are introduced or or move mm-hmm. in and out of. And I just want to talk about like the the first one, which really begins the movie, which is the arrival or return of Barbara Jean, played by Ronnie Blakely, to Nashville. And then she's playing a character that's sort of like kind of based on Loretta Lynn. But if Haven Hamilton, played by Henry Gibson, who, you know, uh, was in Magnolia, a movie very indebted to Nashville. And of mm-hmm. course, for, for me, he's uh, the Dr. Mengele, like head of the Kopeck family in The Burbs. One of my also the movies. priest. Mm-hmm. Also the yeah. priest from Wedding Crashers. Oh, oh yes. my god! <laughs> Big role, you know. No, he's great. He's great. But Henry Gibson is so funny in this movie, and and all of his, like you said, Andrew, his terrible bullshit Americana, like corn pone, that, that keep it going song, so funny. Where he just keep it going, talking, keep it going. It's like so also, ultimate. Like oh, it's so old. It's such old and also uh, his ballad for the sake of the children. We must say goodbye, which is a song of just like a song you're singing to your mistress, and the point is like sorry. I can't leave my wife to be with you. And the funniest Lorelai and like his little league pitching is something to see. It's just like my the kids. I got to take my son fishing. And his mistress is in the recording studio with him in that opening scene too, <laughs> like with his son. Oh, is that a lady Pearl played by Barbara yeah. Baxley? <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, like uh, it's, it's Barbara Jean is returning to Nashville from some sort of, she's like the queen. They, She's the queen of Nashville, and she's returning from some sort of vague hospital stay. Um, they're blaming it on like a like a she was in a the burn ward or something, but she's clearly had some sort of like nervous mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. And all of Nashville turns out to the airport, uh, and we meet most of the characters we're going to follow in this movie. And I guess I'll just kind of like try to try to go through some of some of the some of the people that populate the world of this movie. Like there is. Uh, the horny waitress and wannabe singer Suleen Gay, uh, played by Gwen awesome Wells. Name. She's the the terrible yeah. the terrible singer, but like she's always, she's a it's wannabe when they star. Recruit, when uh, Michael Murphy gets her recruited, like he's the campaign manager that's like trying to set up all these events. And when he hears her name, he's like, "Well, if her name is half as, or if she's half as sultry as her name, yeah, provocative, yeah." yeah. <laughs> Suleen Gay, and then um, I love how boss, Catholic she is too. She's like. Really horny, but she's like wicked Catholic. Like her desk at, or like her desk at home is like covered in statues and rosaries and stuff. And she's yeah. like stuffing her bra to make her titties look bigger. And like the na- the name of the song she wrote is like uh, like the girl who can't get enough or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> I want and, you to uh, be the one. <laughs> and then uh, her her boss at sort of the lunch counter she works at is a guy named uh, Wade, played by Robert uh, Dokwai, who's like. A uh, black guy who's, uh, you might remember him. He's the police chief from the RoboCop movies. He's the captain of the precinct from the RoboCop movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, out of all the characters in the movie, uh, the character of Wade is the one who gets uh, gets thrown out of a bar for uh, heckling Tommy Brown, the other, yeah, he's the one. The, the other yeah. black mm-hmm. guy in Nashville. He seems to be the character who's most out of place in Nashville. And indeed, he's yeah, the one who he's... says that he's leaving town at the end of the movie. He knows he's he's wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he's more streetwise than the other characters. Kind of knows what's going on more than more than all of them and is tr- attempting to guide Sue Lee who you know onto the 
the right path. At the end, he kind of is forced to tell her, like, look, you can't sing, so please stop trying. He's like, they're going to um, kill you in this town. They're going to kill you. You can't sing. You got to yeah. leave. Like, And he's the one who's sort of like, he's the odd one out because everyone else in this movie seems completely like Nashville is the only place in the world that they like, they got it like rose colored. Like, yeah. they're just like seeing it through this way and he's like, this is all bullshit. He's probably not from Nashville too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says he's going home to Detroit. You're, you're oh yeah, he's woods, from Detroit. Andrew. He's from yeah. Detroit. Yeah. 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 And speaking uh, of um, people that aren't from Nashville, some of the other characters, um, we have Shelley Duvall as um, L.A. Joan. Who, Martha. But she wants to be called L.A. Joan now. She changed yeah. her name. <laughs> she goes to visit uh, to stay with her uncle. Who's, mm-hmm. Whose wife, is, her aunt, is in the hospital, Mr. Green. There's a Scott Glenn plays uh, like a soldier who's just a big Barbara Jean fan. He's just like mm-hmm. a Barbara Jean fanboy. Uh, He's a weirdo, too. Like you feel yeah. kind of uneasy the whole movie. And that comes into play at the end. That's really great. Oh, yeah. It's a great setup. Yeah. And then there's I, Bill Murray and John. I love the part when Opal is, she's just standing next to him at the Barber Jean performance. Oh God, she's like, yeah. free in Vietnam. Yeah. And she goes, I can tell by your face you were. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, what? And then she's like, what was it like? He's like, uh, kind of hot and wet. Yeah, it was <laughs> kind of hot and humid. But he, he, like, he looks like he's dead inside. It's kind of funny. But she's like super nice. She's like, were you in Vietnam? Oh, I can tell by your face you were. <laughs> Uh, there is uh, Ned Beatty, who is um, Delbert Reese, who's sort of like a a local lawyer and palm. Oh, dude, I love him. I'm gonna. He's, I'm ma- gonna he's married to Li- <laughs> <laughs> He's married to Lily Tomlin's character, who's the uh, the, the 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 church lady and uh, gospel singer. Um, they have two have, deaf kids. Yeah, you have two deaf kids. I, I love the they, with her and the kids. It's very like it's oh, a very it's, sweet. it's so beautiful. It's so sweet yeah. and like and when, these little like, when she tells, tiny like moments at this in any other movie you just wouldn't exist, but it's just these like moments of just like lived in family life that feels so like authentic and real. And when she tells um, Opal, yeah, I have because Opal's like, do your son oh, want to yeah. be singers too? And she's like, no, my sons are deaf. And he, she, Opal is like. That's the that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And she's like, no, I mean, they're very happy. Like, you should meet them. They're like very, they're very happy. They have great personalities. And she's like, I could not. I could I not. It's meet just them. so awful. Would, it's that'd like, be just so depressing. Oh, she's like, so oh horrible. It's so funny. It's so funny. Then there is a yeah, John Triplett we mentioned, played by Michael Murphy, is the he's like kind uh, of the driving Philip force Walker. behind everything. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 the campaign manager who's in town for the Tennessee primary. Dude, I love him like, so much in this movie when he goes. Oh, we'll he's so about, good. We'll talk about Keith Carradine and Christina Raines and the other guy who are uh, Bill, Tom, and Mary, the like folk the, group. Yeah, the Peter Paul and, and he Mary. goes. Through, he goes. Uh, he goes to recruit them for like the event, and um, he's like talking to Tom from or Bill from the group. And he's like, and he's married to Christina Raines. They're a couple, but she's cheating on him with Keith Carradine, the other member of the band. But he goes to recruit them, and he's like, he's like, do you don't care? He's like, I don't care about politics. He's like, don't care. He's like, okay, great, you're perfect for this. He's like, you know, we're <laughs> we're setting up all these, we're getting all these, uh, all this like redneck crap, the redneck music. Yeah, he's like, you know, this redneck <laughs> crap. It's like Michael Murphy is like, he's like playing everyone off each other, and like you think he's into, like, oh, no, that's great. Then he like sits down to a guy they can really talk to and he's like yeah this this bullshit he's like so you guys would be the, like we'd be only the only rock group he's like yeah he's like well that sounds pretty good and then like he's trying to recruit it and christina Raines comes out she meets him she's like well we can't do that because we're registered democrats and michael murphy's like i'm a registered democrat yeah, I'm a registered <laughs> what does democrat. it matter yeah. and it's such a perfect like political like campaign manager like the worst kind of people do this job <laughs> Yeah. And then I guess uh, you mentioned uh, Keith Carradine as Tom of like, you know, the 
uh, the he gets around in this man. movie. He he gets around in this movie. He has mm-hmm. sex with everyone in this so movie. So horny, like he, <laughs> yeah. he keeps bugging Lily Tomlin because he met her in the studio to like come and meet him and like because he wants to sleep with her and she keeps shoving him away, like don't call my house again or like she's telling her husband if that person calls again. I want the pl- I want the police called and she's trying to shove him off and eventually like at some point in the movie they meet up and she sleeps with him. And she's like getting dressed to leave and stuff. And he's calling and he up another bitch. Call, makes a call to yeah. another girl. His side piece <laughs> in New York. He's such a player. He yeah. like, I think um, the girl he's he like, calls you should in- come down here and see me. Like telling the girl from New York, <laughs> come down to Nashville because I'm horny still. Basically. Well, I the way I read it is um, he's really in love with Lily Tomlin more than anyone else. And yeah. he this girl in New York, I think, is his one is his actual girlfriend. Yeah. And. So he him I feel like it's an empty gesture him being like oh come down and see me because he knows that she's going to say no cuz she can't because she's working at a museum and meanwhile he's fucking all these other girls who he doesn't care with he has sex Fucked with Opal, Opal at one point <laughs> he has sex with Opal and yeah he's like Opal, get the fuck out <laughs> yeah he like kicks everyone else out at one point he has sex with Mary his like bandmate and she says i love you and he just doesn't answer and then um I think that he has a bump in with Shelley Duvall who tries to fuck him and he just tells her like, you got to get off that diet. You're way too thin. Like you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a scene where all of those girls are all in this um, bar like listening to him. Like, this is sing. the I'm easy scene. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he's singing this like love song specifically for um, for Lily Tomlin. But all the girls think he's singing it to her, to <laughs> yeah, it's them. It's so good. It's and, so good. Um, I think it's played like Lily Tomlin really is in love with him, but just doesn't want to like face it, you know, kind of. Yeah, she's got a normal life, you know. Yeah, she has the she life. She doesn't want to break up these, her kids. And... These two beautiful children. Um, and a fat, good old boy husband. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what's, funny, what's funny, too, though, is her husband tries to make a move on Suli Gay. Yeah. And she like kind of shoves him off and uh Wade, her boss, kind of helps her out with that. And he's like after yeah, Wade he, like, tries sca- to hook he up with Liana, up. Lilina. He scampers off into his car and he's like bitching because he got like kind of like shut down and like caught. Yeah. So it's <laughs> he's like, like he's not innocent either. Yeah. He's probably been fucking women for years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I guess like the thing I really have returned to is like in the in what they really like the the first like the, the scene that starts the movie is Barbara Jean's return to Nashville from this like unspecified hospital stay, and like the whole city turns out for her. There the Tennessee Twirlers are there, and there's like the high school marching band, and yeah. she's like you know playing to her adoring public, and she's like you know I got I got to mention like out of all the performances in this movie. Uh, Ronnie Blakely was a singer herself, and this is like I think maybe one of her first movies, like really not a professional actor, and turns in just such a haunting performance. As, the best performance, as Barbara in the movie, Jean, I think. for the sure. The best performance, in the, yeah, as like as someone who is truly talented, but is as I think Pauline Kael said, uh, like in, in this Nashville is one of her favorite movies. But she says, the goat. Like, she was the goat. In, in, yeah. in Ronnie Blakely's performance, you really see someone who is being consumed by their own talent. And, and yeah. like really is being destroyed by it. And like, as she's leaving the airport, she just collapses in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And then is like, is, is sent off to another hospital stay. Back and it's really a like, hospital actually in Nashville that people like can visit her and they know mm-hmm. where she's at. Yeah. And like, you know, th- this is sort of a, an ominous uh, foregrounding for the, like what will happen at the end of this movie. But like, 
yeah, it's, we, we see this like the, the queen of Nashville who is like very much, and then her, her husband and manager is uh, also a really funny character. This, uh, he's like just like fat like asshole fat, who's like constantly, yeah. He's like the fat guy from Phantom of the Paradise who works for Swan. Just like a sweaty <laughs> classic 70s manager type who like takes no shit. And his whole success is Barbara Jean and making sure that she's fit in like doing the right stuff. Like they argue and fight. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like, He's not like abusive, but he is kind of like. I mean, emotionally, he is. Yeah, and he's like, why do you got? Why do you got to act like this and make me yell at you? Why do you got to go and do a thing like that? Well, like rubbing her hand. Played by uh, Alan Garfield, mm-hmm. and like, but he really does love her. I think. Yeah, because, he does care um, about her. She, he, um, she thinks that he's going to this place to cheat on her at one point, and you think that he is too. At because um, he has to leave the hospital and go to this after party for the Grand Ole Opry and thank Connie White who sang in uh, Barbara Jean's place. Also, there's like some unspecified bad blood between Connie White and Barbara well, Jean. Like, because Co- Connie White, played by Karen Black, is sort of like the new Barbara Jean. She's more like, yeah. I think, loosely based on Tammy Wynette. Yeah. And that like in her absence, like she is the heir apparent. And then at one point, Haven says like, oh, no, Con- Barbara, Barbara and Connie Jean will never share a stage together. Mm-hmm. They'll never appear on stage together. I love it the first time you see her on a poster and someone goes, Oh, Hal Philip Walker looks just like Connie White because, like, his yeah. so there's a sticker over her, like, with his name. Yeah, on it. it's so funny. <laughs> and um, but the husband is like um, relieving the hospital room, and Barbara Jean is like, "You're leaving me, you're abandoning me," which is true. But he's like, um, you know, no, I'm just going. I have to go in glad hand and like, you know, go to this thing. She said he wanted to go hop. He wanted to go hop. Yeah, he's now, like, but- I. He's like, yeah. I, I know I hate hobnobbing with those phonies. I never hobbed a knob in my life, woman. I don't tell you how <laughs> yeah. to sing songs. And um, he goes, and you d- kind of do get the sense that he kind of hates it, like being with these people. He hates and his he's, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, and one of my favorite like little touches that I didn't notice until watching the movie this time, but, and I'm like shocked I didn't notice it because it's such a like big, it's in a lot of shots, is um, the flowers in Barbara Jean's room. The flowers that um, Haven uh, Hamilton gives her um, are like is an HH shaped in his like it's <laughs> it's his so flowers in his logo. own initials. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so like oh uh, that now that's cynical. Like it's the most like narcissistic bullshit. Yeah. Um, so she's in the hospital for a while, and then like she's kind of cleared to leave again. This is like kind of skipping ahead, but I mean, this movie we can skip around to anything. I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until the, until get, the end, you can skip around. She gives her anything. first public performance in a while. And I will say, this is my favorite depiction of mental illness I've ever put on film. She puts oh, yeah. it, she does it so well. And like, like, it's you like see harp- for the first time how talented she really is. And mm-hmm. she does two mm-hmm. songs that are like phenomenal ballads. And then she like starts going into like these like manic ramblings. And it's, it like makes me like almost tear up every time when I'm watching this scene. It's like she starts mm-hmm. doing her stage patter and telling these rambling stories, and it just goes on and on. And then she's and the like, band, she looks, like, doesn't know what to do. They, they, they start playing starting they up the stop. music, and she keeps dr- tra- trailing off. Like, there's yeah. a part where she looks up though at the sky. She goes, "I think there's a storm," and she's like going to feel her head. Like she's starting to. When I was in, um, I was not, just really quick. When I was in nursing school, I had a for my psych rotation. My instructor was really great. She was like a psych nurse for twenty years. One of my favorite instructors of all time. And she, in in the lectures, she would show a few uh, clips from really good films of, like, good depictions of mental illness. And um, I 
told her about Nashville and I showed her the scene. She's like, I'm going to use this in my class from now on. And she loved it. And I, I was like kind of satisfied with myself because I was like, I had just watched the movie and then we had this class. I like, I was like, Sue, you got to see this. And it's still sticks in my mind. It's like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do it that well and like how realistic it is and how someone declines like that and how quick it can happen, like right in front of your eyes. And it, I just, it's like your heart breaks for Barbara Jean at the, in this scene. Cause like they got to rush her off. She's like, no, I'm not done. She's like pulling back her mic and they got to, yeah. you like, she's like, feels like she's like a little kid and they're like, no, no, like we got to go. And it's just my favorite scene in the movie for sure. And you guys are hundred percent correct. She gives the best performance and it's like just stunning, especially for 1975, like to, to be that accurate with how that, that kind of thing occurs in someone. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just great. Like it's my favorite part. By far. It's like blonde with it, but blonde before blonde, truly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but also the husband um, kind of diffusing things after, and you do like, I, this is the, the part where I was like, oh, he does like really care about her, but he just doesn't know how to not be an asshole and how to not like, you know, he's like a controlling just manager. Just a dumb American man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. And just doesn't want her career to fail um, for, you know, whatever reason, cynical or not, like, but really does love her and is like appalled at how the crowd treats her. And they're because they start like booing and jeering. And I also thought it was funny because like if this was like a latter day like Lou Reed show, like this is just he would just ramble for like a half hour between songs while the band <laughs> played the opening to take a walk on the wild side for like a half hour and it would just be normal. People would be like, "Whoa, this is awesome." <laughs> yeah. But the, the um, only time Michael Murphy um triplet the the manager the campaign manager he's trying to get barbara jean on to play this this event and her husband the manager's like no no politics ever i won't do it like leave me alone and then she has this kind of breakdown again during her performance and he comes out and he diffuses it and he's like that girl's she came out here she did her thing like she's back there crying her eyes out she feels terrible trust me and they're still booing him he's like you come to the uh the event the Phil, the, the Parthenon, Phil, the Parthenon. She's gonna sing for you for free because he looks over at like you know, you know Michael Murphy, and he's like, "This is like what I gotta do to like diffuse everything." So yeah. then it's set in stone, and he tells him, "He's like, I want to set some ground rules." Like, yeah, anything. He's like, she she sings no before he's literature. even there. He's like, no, I don't want any <laughs> political literature going around. She sings before he's even there. He's like, <laughs> no fine, sign, fine. no no sign either. It's just the funniest yeah. man. And then Which of course they totally ignore him. You never yeah. see. I love how you never see the candidate. You never see. You only hear Hal Philip Walker. You never. He's never seen. You only mm-hmm. hear his ramblings from the uh, the propaganda Which is, man. We'll get to the end, but like it's so great because. He's like, it's like all politicians were like, they're, yeah, we're going to go back to grassroots and like the American people, I care about them. And you don't see him, like, you don't see him at all. Like, he's coming to this event eventually, but you don't feel any kind of connection to him. And he just feels like another phony politician to me, you know? Yeah. Another character that I'm like obsessed with and that I think like Altman really poured a lot of him, himself into is um, Miss Pearl, the um, yes. like ever present mistress of, um, you know, Haven Haven. Hamilton. And um, she, at one point um, at the party, which Opal describes as very Bergman, but the people are all wrong for Bergman. Um, (laughs) That was such a funny line. Yeah. um, He, Miss Pearl is talking to someone and is like, um, yeah, we don't do politics. She's talking to the, the manager guy. We don't do politics. 
the only politics we've ever done is we pulled for those Kennedy boys, but they were different. And then she almost starts tearing up. And then later on, when she gets drunk at this um, burlesque type place, is she's talking to, I think, Opal um, or not Opal. It's I can't remember who she's talking to exactly. It might be Opal. And she's like... Um, literally on the verge of tears talking about how special the Kennedys were and how... She knows um, exactly how many votes John Kennedy got in Tennessee. Like, Is it sorry, one of the yeah. people yeah. in the South who didn't go for him? Yeah, <laughs> yeah she says the anti-Catholic. These jugheads down here are all Baptist. And it's so, like, it's really so sad. Like, you really, like, feel her despair and her, like, she really gave up when the Kennedys got shot. And then um, later on, after, like, hearing that, um, Opal is it, I don't know if she was there to hear I think like it was her that she was talking to but um, Opal later on is like you know the people like Miss, Miss Pearl like she's the real assassin of Kennedy because she owns a gun <laughs> it's like what are you talking about you fucking <laughs> well, idiot and so I'm glad you brought up the Kennedys because the Kennedys and like the, the, the murders of the two Kennedy brothers are sort of haunt this movie from the very beginning and like this comes into focus at the end, but like this is a movie very much, it's, a, it's, it's about country music, but it's really about politics. And it really is a very political movie. And like I said, like this is America at its bicentennial. This is post-Vietnam, post-Watergate. And like I said, the question is like, where are we going? Like, who are we? And I think that's, that's really what this movie is about. And like the invocation of the Kennedys throughout it is a, a foreshadowing of what happens at the end of the movie. But like to get to there, we have to talk about like sort of the, the hidden occluded character who I describe as, uh, so, or, or sorry, um, I think Mary from uh, Bill, <laughs> Tom and Mary describe him, uh, describes him as looking like Howdy Doody. So oh, yeah. I refer to him as the Howdy Doody guy. He's a Stephen King guy. looking guy. Yeah, yeah, he just sort of shows up in Nashville. He's, he's there in the car accident. He's walking around. There's also... Um, the the guy and his old lady the 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 one another wannabe singer whose name is Albuquerque, uh, who sings at the end. But like he walks with her after the car accident. But he's just a guy. He, he takes a, he rents a room in Mr. Green's house. Uh, the 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 uncle of Shelley Duvall's L. meets L. A. Joan. He meets mm-hmm. L. A. Joan. He rents a room in this house. And the whole movie he has this like fiddle case with him. And we don't really get much of his character at all except for one scene where he calls home, and talks to his mother who's this, like, very overbearing woman who's, like, terrified of, like, all kinds of, like, poison. Sounds like a northerner. Yeah, she yeah. thinks the South is filled with parasitic fungus, and she's very concerned with him because he's like, oh, is the, it's, it's a boarding house run by a man. It's probably not clean. And he's like, yes, mother, yes, mother. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah, the, the, this overbearing, paranoid uh, figure. He's like the soldier, I, though. He's kind of lingering at each event. Yeah. Like, he's got yeah. a soda. He, like, sometimes it's like he's sitting next to the soldier. Like He really Robert is, like, Shadow Scott Glenn. Yeah. And like, you know, in the scene with Barbara Jean where she where, you know, like the her mental illness comes to a fore, we see like he's focusing with a noticeable intensity on, on Barbara Jean. And like you're sort of wondering, like he's him, him and Scott Glenn just like don't really fit in. They don't really interact much or like they're just sort of there. They're, they're just both, both them, following her. They're like, yeah, they're both following almost. Barbara Jean well, around. The soldier, the soldier goes into her room and just sits there while she's asleep. And then the nurse yeah. comes in the morning. He like wakes up. He's like, "Oh, I think I have the wrong room." And the nurse like, "I think you do." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and she just ignores it. She's like, "Hey, Barbara Jean." Yeah. And there's a scene where um, after Mr. The Green soldier is did told that. The soldier did that. <laughs> not, not this. And there's a scene where after uh, after uh, Mr. Green is told that his wife just passed away and he's like catatonic. 
uh, Scott Glenn in his only moment of real interaction with another person and just starts telling him about like how much his mom loved Barbara Jean. And she said, like, you know, when you go away, all that I care is I just want you to see Barbara Jean. Don't even have to tell her about what I feel, but I just want you to meet Barbara Jean. And like, he's just like dead with grief about finding out it was his wife. But yeah, like he's just obsessed with, uh, he's like, Jean. Oh, it's great to see Barbara Jean. And like, he's like, you have a great day, Mr. Green. And like, he leaves and the whole time. Mr. Green is yeah. just like frozen. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, well, it's he kind, says his really mom, his, his mom saved Barbara Jean from the fire that she was in when, mm-hmm. um, was like next door to her and like saved her when she was in her fire, her mental breakdown slash fire that she was in. So then you kind of feel like Scott Glenn isn't as sinister as he quite feels like you're like, why is he hanging around? What's this weirdo doing? But then you're like, oh, he's just a mama's boy. Yeah. So uh, but before we get to the uh, uh, let's get to the uh, election day in Tennessee, like the the last day of this movie, because to to bring it all home. But I just want to talk about the two scenes, (laughs) the two hilarious scenes with Opal where she's walking around a junkyard and a school bus depot coming up with bullshit to narrate her documentary. And she's just like, the caucuses of these iron beasts strew the landscape. And like, just the most pretentious dragon. The school bus, she's like, she's like, do the little black children and the little white children, do they have yellow dreams of these nightmarish buses? And I just, I love all of her absolute bullshit. Just trying to make it sound like interesting or like, I don't know, scarier than it is. It's just so stupid. She says um, when she's walking around the school bus yard, she stops her narration and says, it has to be more positive. No, it has to be more negative. <laughs> she just doesn't know what to and do. And then she runs into like, I think Jeff Goldblum shaving. Like, yeah. yeah. The, like in the reflection of one of the buses. She's like, oh, hello. Then I think so, that's what, then I think he gives her a ride to like even Hamilton's or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Very so, funny. So basically, like, as I said, uh, this movie is just like you spend five days in the lives of these people in and around the city of Nashville, Tennessee. And then we get to the last day in the movie. It's Tuesday. It's election day. It's it's the primary. It's a presidential primary. How Philip Walker is on the ticket. Uh, And like, so the whole thing Michael Murphy has been doing this whole movie is he's arranging this big, big rally for how Philip Walker on election day. And it is held at the Parthenon. Which is, it's so perfect because it's this like air stats piece of like this Potemkin arrangement of this, like it was built for America's centennial. And like, and, and uh, Ned Beatty's character says, you know, they, they called Nashville the Athens of the South. But I love this representation of like, it's supposed to represent the Parthenon, which is like America as being the heir to this like uh, supposedly ancient democratic culture. But the building is made out of lumber and plaster of Paris. It's, it's all fake. And it goes back to this idea of like McCabe and Miss Miller is that like, is America really like this ancient democratic culture or are we just like lucky, half smart and barely civilized that we just like inherited like the mantle of the entire world? And we also took over, we took over this giant, like rich country, like this resource rich country. We kind of lucked out by, I mean, I mean, with colonialism, we just took guns by force and everything, but it's not like we like like do we earn it? Do we earn do no? We, do we deserve America? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> do we deserve no, America? No. And like Altman is saying, like, well, we live here, we could love America, but we probably don't deserve it. <laughs> yeah. So and then like so everyone shows up, all the characters we followed in this movie for yet another big, big event and musical performance. And everyone is sort of going about their business. They're they're buzzing about, you know, like it's a beehive of activity. And uh Barbara Jean 
appears on stage with Haven Hamilton and they they sing a they sing a duet. Uh, you know, one, I love you, two, I'm thinking of you, three, I'll never let you go, four, I miss you, five, I want to kiss you, six, I won't leave you no more. And it, it's like, you know, part it's a piece of everything that's happened in this movie so far. But like while they're singing their first duet, we get a shot of the huge American flag that covers the entire facade of the Parthenon. And the entire, uh, the entire screen is filled up with just this American flag. As, as the wind catches it and like this like ripple passes across it, like a, like a wavelength moving across it. And it's the first time you see it and then you see it a second time. And you, you're, you're overcome. Like the first time I saw this movie, I had no idea what was going to happen. But I was overcome with such a profound sense of dread. Yeah. Of like the, the way that American flag is there. And then we get Barbara Jean and she sings a, like a solo song, which is this ballad called My, uh, My Sweet Idaho Home. And it's this beautiful ballad that I think is like a serious version. It's like thematically similar to the dumb Haven Hamilton song. We must be doing something right. That's a great song. Like all of her songs are really pretty. Yeah. Both of these songs invoke kind of the hard scrabble times of the past to kind of justify the present. Like Haven Hamilton's thing is like, I've lived through three depressions and seven Dust Bowl droughts, but I've never had a doubt. And, you know, like all the wars this country's fought and like uh, the things that are... The, th- the things that formed America, the, the hardships that formed America in our adolescence. And Barbara Jean's song is about her mom and dad. And it's about how they grew up, like growing up on the prairie with like, you know, tornadoes or like her daddy never had much with like eight brothers and sisters and, you know, being raised by his siblings because his parents are dead. And it's this like, it's, it's very moving, it's very moving, like heartfelt song. But once again, it all goes back to this question of like, what is America now? And like, where are we going? Now, the hardships are over. All, like I said, all we have is time and money. So what are we now in our adulthood? And you get the second shot of, like I said, this huge American flag. And in the crowd, we just see like everyone watching it. And then there's the howdy doody guy. And he unlocks the fiddle case he's had with him the whole movie. And, this, and as soon as Barbara Jean is done singing, she goes, that's for mama and daddy. He takes a revolver out of his fiddle case and assassinates her on stage. And, and just kills her on stage. Haven Hamilton is shot because he was standing next to her. And we get the great line where he like, it, like, the, 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 like I said, the whole movie, everything comes into like, it just the, the tone of the movie changes entirely. And like, it's the first time like it, it, it feels totally out of place for the rest of the movie. But like, you don't, you don't really know what to make of it. And Haven, who's been this like, has this really funny and terrifying line where he says, this isn't Dallas, it's Nashville. You show them what we're made of. And he goes, yeah, they can't do that to us here. He goes, somebody sing. Somebody sing, sing. Like, as, like he's shot in the arm as he's being like ushered off the stage, bleeding to death. They're carrying Barbara Jean's body away. The last thing you hear from her husband is, I just can't stop that ble- this bleeding, man. And then Albuquerque, the woman who's been one of these hangers on in the background of this movie the whole time, just grabs the mic from Haven, gets on stage and starts singing the Keith Carradine song that the, the audience members throughout the movie has sung. It's like you hear it on the radio. The Keith Carradine song, It Don't Worry Me. And she starts singing, like, you may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. And then Lily Tomlin's gospel choir joins her. And, like, it just becomes this huge musical number as we see, like, the crowd all, the, all of the main in. characters are yeah. just walking around totally dazed. Like, Michael Murphy is just there alone on What's the stage. What's crazy, too, walk- is right when the shooting happens, uh, <laughs> Hal Philip Walker and all of his cars scramble. And they leave, like, immediately. Yeah. You never <laughs> even got to see they- him. 
Yeah, they, they get just, the fuck out of there. They're, like, the security just clears it off, and he's like gone. And then hilariously, we see Opal, who has been trying to document, and the one actually important thing for her documentary happens, and then she's just in the crowd being shuffled around going, what happened? What happened? Yeah. Can someone tell me what happened? <laughs> <laughs> she misses the one important I, that thing line for her documentary. Too, though, that line being, you may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me, is like, that is purely American. Yep. It's like, like distilled right in that line, this whole movie and like America's existence. Yeah. Another line from that, from the song is um, the economy is depressed, but not me, <laughs> which is such like, um, you know, and it's like cutting to all these people and slowly they're just like kind of forgetting what just happened. Yes. Like, clapping and joining in and like having a good time. And Albuquerque's like thrilled because it's her big break. And like, and she's actually really good too. And unlike um, Suleen, like she actually has some pipes on her. Yeah, it, it pans past Suli Gay, who um the last who was also on stage, and the last time we saw her, she was in this burlesque and she got a chance to sing. She sings one song and doesn't get booed off the stage like last time. She goes into another song and starts getting booed. And it turns out Ned Beatty like told her, You can sing tonight, but um you have to strip. If you strip, then we'll um let you sing with uh Barbara Jean Barbara tomorrow Jean. at the at yeah. the park, and she's like, okay, and um, she like very reluctantly strips, and um, you know, in so front of all these hooting break, good old boys, yeah, they're like and, trying to get like donations, right? Like just <laughs> yeah. like Michael Murphy yeah. set up all of this, and then um, so in this final scene, as they're like whisking Barbara Jean's like limp body off the stage, um, the camera passes by um, Sue Lee who did all this for nothing and is just sit standing there in shock, like total, like terrible ending for her character to the movie. Um, Bill, Mary and Tom just like hightail it out of there. Um, Tom is one of the people carrying Barbara Jean's body. Yeah. Yeah. I also, uh, this is like, I mean, this is earlier in the movie. I really like the scene where they shows everyone on Sunday morning at their different churches. There's like four yeah, different that's really churches good. where like yeah. the Catholic one is pretty full. Like Suleen is there. The mistress, Miss Pearl is there. It's also funny too because, and they go to like, I think a Presbyterian church and Ned Beatty and the two deaf children are there. But the, but the mom and his wife, she's at like a, like a Baptist church because she sings in the choir. And then they go to like another one that, I don't know what it was that Barbara Jean is a part of. It's like that bare bones Protestant church. And she's just like in her wheelchair singing. There's like hardly anybody there. Like that's yeah. her. you could tell she comes from like a humble beginning and she's still part of this like sect of Christianity that like no one does anymore, but she's yeah. still like is sticking to it that like, cause she's just old school. It's just, a, mm-hmm. it's a really good sequence. Like just showing everyone or like, there's like the, uh, Lily Tomlin is like the only white person at this black church. Yeah. It's just really funny. Like they just show like all the different people and it's, it's really and, good. And you know, once again, it's like Sunday morning. It's, it's what's Nashville about. It's about performance. And, that, and like, that's really what this movie is. Haven Hamilton's in the middle of like, one of Haven the Hamilton's in the choir. Yeah. Everything, like Nashville is a city about performance. And I think what the movie's saying is, is, is this kind of like larger stand in for this, for America as, as a whole is that like in by the late seventies? Like, where are we going? It's just like everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to make it. In not some the case way. now at all. That's not the case <laughs> yeah. at all anymore. You know? <laughs> and and like at the end, like um, just five or six years later, we'd see the killing of John Lennon. And like this movie was like sort of I don't want to say blamed for it, but it was sort of like eerily predicted um, 
you know, Mark David Chapman and uh, Robert Altman. I have a quote from him in here. He says, when John Lennon got assassinated, I get a call immediately from the Washington Post. And they say, they said, do you feel responsible for this? And I said, what do you mean responsible? And they said, well, I mean, you're the one that predicted that there would be a political assassination of a star. And I said, well, I don't feel responsible. But I said, don't you feel responsible for not heeding my warning? <laughs> and this is what I mean by like the, the Kennedys haunting this movie of like an America defined by these like whether it's Martin Luther King or the Kennedy brothers, oh, like this, this, this world shaped and like sort of abridged by these political assassinations in the 60s and 70s. But then going into the 80s and the world we inhabit now, it's like assassinations of public figures with no political motive or goal whatsoever. It is just about celebrity. It's just about like fame itself. And mm -hmm. I think like that is like the really like eerie and, and very prophetic aspect of this movie. And that and um, also like the way that celebrity and entertainment and news and politics all blend together yes. in this like miasma that is like Nashville, you know, the party at Haven Hamilton's um, place where, you know, there's like celebrities there, there's political figures there and um, Opal's like sensationalizing of this like American other and it all just kind of like it lumps together at, at the end and forms this like blood clot that just like stops your heart kind of in this yes. just horrifying horrifying that's such a ending. good way to that's such a good way to put it because it's just like the assassination is just like you can feel something bad is coming like right before it happens and like I saw you this think he's gonna assassinate how <laughs> A, a walker, right? You think, yeah, yeah. Like, like not like like you think that it would have been him if anyone, right? Because you feel like yeah. the movie is political, and then the whole time it's like, no, you're right. Like it is about just like celebrity. Mm -hmm. And Barbara Jean, like the most innocent character throughout this, mm -hmm. is the one that suffers. Yeah, I'm really struck by uh, like it, it, at the end, it turns into this big musical number, and then like it shifts from like you see like all the all the characters we, that we followed throughout this movie just sort of walk around in a daze. And then just leave, and then the camera, like then the camera begins focusing on the actual crowd, which is this like real like big crowd assembled, and everyone's singing along with "It Don't Worry Me," and we get all these shots of like real Americans, like seemingly undisturbed by what just happened, and including many shots of of young children in the crowd. And mm -hmm. I, I was when I, when I saw this again, I was just really struck by like how that like that's us. That's me, you, and everyone listening to this now. Everyone born after all of the events in this movie. Like mm -hmm. this, like the and then like the assassination of Barbara Jean, the Queen of Nashville, is this sort of like apocalyptic moment, like that shot of the American flag as it sort of pulses. Is this real like apocalyptic moment that in which we pass through a veil and that we have like a new America, like America like the America that we live in today is given birth to by this act of like this this at the sacrificial altar of Barbara Jean's assassination. And all these shots of children at the end of the movie, I was just so frozen almost in terror at just thinking like, this is us. Like this is me watching the movie now. Like this is the, this is the America, like the America birthed by the assassination of Barbara Jean is the one that we're all living in right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say it's a little bit more extreme, but I've said that shootings like mass shootings are like the great American pastime now. Because they just happen, and then we come together kind of in unity, and we're like, it's so terrible. And the news have something to talk about, and people can argue political sides and all this stuff. And people get, like, amped up from it. 
And then the like we move on because another one happens, and we there just was literally just a mass shooting in Nashville like two weeks ago, right? Like yeah, that's the end of this movie where these people like kind of easily moved on, and it is kind of that thing that Altman does in his movies, like this horrible tragedy bringing people together, but it's also tragic in a sense that we can move on from it like that easily. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just. I don't like he couldn't have known that we were going to move towards, you know, going from Columbine and forward and how often yeah. that would happen. And that when I first like watched Nashville, uh, I don't even know when it was, but I mean, obviously at that point there had already been a, a shit ton of mass shootings that happened in the U S and I was like the end of that movie, I didn't see coming at all. And I was like, ow, like that just, yeah. like, that just fucking hit oh. me in the stomach. Like Jesus yeah. Christ. It's- the, the ending of Nashville is so like like the end of McCabe and Miss Miller is just even almost even more so is just so powerful and profound because the last thing we see is like the camera pulls out to reveal this huge crowd scene and then it just slowly pans up into the heavens and the clouds as the strains of it don't worry me plays and it's just it's like this like is I the said, promised like, land just, I was this is all it is I was now. I was frozen frozen in my seat. Uh, watching, seeing the end of this movie, and like Andrew has a listener. Why are we talking about Robert Altman? An artist who can call his shot like that in 1975 and just be like, "America, this is who we are. This is where we're going," and have it now in 2023 still hit like a fucking freight train is just it's it's it, that's why he's a great artist. That's why these these movies are masterpieces. Yeah. It's it's unreal. And then like after that, um, after the credits roll, there's like during the credits, the end credits, there's this slow um, and they're like abridged end credits because they put a lot of them at the beginning of the movie. Well, um, they're like introducing all the characters. This like gospel choir starts singing. It don't worry me. And it's like goes from like one voice very quietly singing it to this like heart churning like crescendo and the last like three minutes or so is completely blank screen as this song is just playing and just like imagining walking out of the theater to that is like so oh fuck (laughs) it's like crazy two astonishing pieces of pieces of work uh that like i said like really credibly render like the history and future of america and like in the way that as I said earlier, it is true and beautiful in the way great art can be. And I guess uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there with, uh, with Nashville and McCabe and Miss Miller. Uh, I know, like, this is, our, this is our longest episode yet, but, like, I guess oh, I mean, just, like, he has a million movies that I could talk for about. Further, further Altman, yeah. like, Shortcuts is really the Long third goodbye. movie in this trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's, like, it's 20 years on from Nashville, and it's just L.A. in the 90s, and it's all of the same themes. Mm-hmm. It's Raymond Carver. It's the exact same, like, ensemble cast of, like, moving in and out of all these dozens of different characters' lives uh, as a, another, sim- another really staggering ending. Um, I would also highly recommend Three Women. With the original Shelley Mulholland Duvall. Drive. Yes, the original Mulholland yeah. with Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. His, his, the variety in his films, even like Brewster McCloud is a very strange, hilarious, unique, like no one did it like Altman, which is why he's my goat. Because if you Andrew, actually- have you seen have you seen O.C. and Stiggs? That is a movie that I've championed for so long. I have the it's DVD. It's so fucking good. <laughs> it is like live action Looney Tunes. That is a movie that I, I based a lot of E1 stuff on stuff like O.C. and Stiggs. It was- um, me and 
Taylor, Tupac directs, you guys know, like the movie G, he, he's a, a Altman freakazoid like I am. Him and I have been obsessed with that movie forever. We show it to everyone, but I feel it's like, like top three for me for I, Altman. I, I can't recommend it to people exactly like I can his others because it's definitely you have to have the sense of humor for it. Yeah, it's like, very non. They're based on National <laughs> Lampoon characters that were like short stories. Um, but there's a line where <laughs> oh, they're they're amazing performances. But there's a line in that movie where they're like, "What are you gonna do? Like, you're gonna go pick up girls? Like, oh yeah, we uh." We, kept the, we pick up these doped up girls. We call them sluts. And it's just like, that's they're going to be their day. It's so, it's so ridiculous. It's like Altman's version of like a teen, teen comedy. Yeah, it's like it's, a teen, raunchy, like meatballs but it's like, type thing. It's just like, like they're going to buy tuxedos and they're wearing like tuxedo shirts and like top hats as they go to buy tuxedos. They have like costumes for everything they do. And it's just going from like scene to scene of them doing like Ed, Ed and Eddie bullshit. And it's yeah, so and it's, fun. It's like in it's Arizona like, and Phoenix racist and like misogynistic and like homophobic but, it, but like in the best way it. It yeah, 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 yeah. Too, <laughs> and also it's very critical of um you know a, a capitalism and they're like they're, the whole time they're bullying the dude from uh two and a half men and his family the schwabs yeah because the schwab is like the guy who owns the town he's like the richest man in town and they're whole yeah. like just fucking with this guy but um i could talk about like all this but one thing i i also wanted to mention is like how much actors loved working with Bob is what everyone called him because they would do these things where like he had filmed for two hours. He would do a scene where he set up all the mics everywhere and they'd shoot a scene. And I'm, I'm repeating myself because I mentioned this yesterday on my show, but he doesn't do like David Fincher bullshit, like 200 takes. Yeah. He didn't beat Shelly Duvall down like Stanley Kubrick, who people will, <laughs> could say is the best American director of all time. In my opinion, it's Altman because he used Duvall like everything and she gave her best performances even better than The Shining for me. Because in that movie, she had to be broken down. He didn't just, like, she probably could have done that without him doing that to her. But Altman believed in his actors, and he'd shoot for, like, two hours like this, and everyone had a good time. And then he'd go smoke weed in his trailer all day. Like, literally all day, <laughs> he would just be hotboxing his trailer. And then at night, everyone would go out to the bars with Bob, and they'd drink all night. The next day, it was the same thing over and over again. So he didn't even work that much when they were shooting, he would just get it right like immediately and then they would all just go party together which sounds like the coolest shit of all time like it sounds like the best life like he's just all of your actor friends all the people you're always working with right oh, we're going to go do Bob's movie again together it sounds like summer camp it sounds amazing and i think that's the results show that in his films and it's an interesting comparison with him and Stanley Kubrick as like another guy, obviously in the conversation for greatest American director. Kubrick for me feels like, a, like an alien, though. He feels like, like an Kubrick, alien. Versus- yeah, <laughs> Kubrick. Kubrick hated actors. <laughs> Kubrick right. hated working with actors, and all of his movies, like actors, are just like like these little like um, mechanical wheels in like the Swiss watch of these very cold and alien. Talk about a cynical divisions. director. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Altman's movies are all so warm and like lived in and nice. Like, you feel like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like you could have fun there, like in Altman's yeah. worlds, despite, because you live in the world he shows you. Like we already live in this world. He's just reflecting. And people have fun all the time. I have Kubrick, fun all the time. Kubrick was like, yeah. I'm going to make you feel really bad right now. Well, I think, I think the Kubrick, I think a lot of his like stuff has to do with this, like, you know, I think a lot of it is apocryphal and like, I don't know if you've really hated actors all like as much as people. I, I feel like it might be a an Alfred Hitchcock type thing where he's like playing up this this persona of 
like you know the creepy weird guy who's like yeah we don't have to compare him to altman either like they're both obviously yeah. great and he's like i said like he's like, like an alien which is what made him good to me because yeah, yeah yeah his movies unnerve me like a lot of them he has, they, un- he, they unnerve me he has autistic boy magic i feel like cooper right. has and um where altman was like a very charismatic people person yeah yeah and um but i yeah i love altman because he really like invented his own style in a way that like few other directors and especially american directors have i would say like you're right i would say people that like i always like to talk about american directors like he only did basically american stories same as the coen brothers they just show like their movies can be viewed as very cynical but also like i like their stuff because they showed the great and the great stuff that people do and how funny people can be being dumb like how the farce of humanity but then it shows like the beautiful stuff like at the end of fargo like that movie is so fucked up and it has that warm beautiful hopeful ending and another person that does this too another great american director who told great american stories jonathan demi one of the all-time best who also had his own style where he was like i'm gonna show you america and it's gonna be goofy and stupid and fucked up but also it's a lot of fun along the way. So come along with me. And that's like what Altman did. That's like what the Coens do. And I love that. I just, I can't get enough of it. I slurp it up. Yeah. Joe Dante kind of does it too, even. I think that's a, uh, a great place to leave it uh, for this episode of Movie Mindset. I think we've, uh, that's Robert Altman. And I, I would just also finally include uh, his live action Popeye as a movie. That Underrated. I, a, a, a place that I would like to live in. I would like to live in the Popeye town from that movie. I would like to be just in that world. And uh, just uh, thanks to Andrew Hudson for joining us today. Uh, yeah, thank you both so much for having me. Episode thank one you, and, and pop that corn. Yeah, I'll be having you guys on for that too. We'll just do a movie swap. I mean, well, you've done it before, but um, we might have to do an OC and Stigs. That would be amazing. Corn. I'd be so down. Um, it is, it is, it's perfectly aligned for the E1 uh, fans, I think, if they haven't seen it. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.